Co-host this week in Hell's Kitchen. It's just fun to say. He is the assistant editor at Fangraphs. Heads up uh, the, all the social media at Fangraphs. Ple- previously wrote about baseball at Sports Illustrated. It's the wonderful John Taylor. John, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm curious for people who are not native New Yorkers or who are not familiar with New York. When you say Hell's Kitchen, if in their mind they're picturing a town that's just permanently on fire. It's nicer which than I it think, used to which be. Which I think would place me somewhere in Northern California, to be fair. Yeah, to, to yeah, on the border there. Um, for, the world is horrible, um, <laughs> and so we're going to try a rough week. Hopefully, give people distraction and, and try to focus on baseball. We will talk about some horrible things within baseball. Um, I do want to start with the real world, obviously, for a second here. You know, I know um, just you know where you are geographically. Um, you probably were not as affected as the rest of the, the the city was, but are you okay? Yeah, so Midtown, as far as I can tell, did not suffer terribly much damage. I haven't been out today uh, to take a look. I've been busy with stuff in, inside my apartment, but really it seems like it was more Brooklyn, Queens, yeah. uh, which are lower-lying areas that got hit particularly hard. There's a lot of flooding there, and a lot of flooding, too, across the river from me in New Jersey, where there were a few tornadoes, actually, which... I mean, that's kind of the wild thing about this. New Jersey got tornado warnings for the first, for which are very, very rare in that state. Uh, the city got a flash flood warning, which has quite literally never happened before. Or at least the warning hasn't. I, I can't speak for the, the entire history of the, the island of Manhattan. But And then we got, over the course of an hour, between 10 and 11 p.m. last night, close to four inches of rain, which is not only a new New York City record, but also breaks the record set literally a week ago when another oh, hurricane rolled through and dumped about three inches of water in roughly an hour so like you said the world is uh it's not it's not the best place right now and certainly it's it's just weird to see so many different parts of the country going through so many different kinds of natural disaster kind of all together mm-hmm. and especially like the way they're all especially now that the way they're kind of packed together but right now you have a city in new orleans that was absolutely wrecked by this last hurricane and then new york which took which took damage on its own despite the fact that those cities are what two thousand miles apart and have at least yeah yeah like i mean and at this point this is a funny thing new york's climate is probably more and more approaching that kind of hot swampy kind of perma humidity that new orleans exists in except for the winter of course but yeah summer in new york especially this summer has been a very hot summer and yeah that's that's probably the city's immediate future for the time being on that positive note. On that fun note, uh, we are going to talk about some horrible things in baseball, but also some fun things in baseball. Um, and the, Mets, special... the Mets qualify as both. Yeah. <laughs> and our special guest uh, will be Julian McWilliams from the Boston Globe, who will talk to us about the Red Sox and uh, 
mostly about the, the current situation with the Red Sox, which they are uh, currently dealing with one of the bigger COVID outbreaks we've seen this year. Um, and from there, we will get into all of your emails, talk about our musical guest, Helen Money, um, having a moment of culture, and then we'll be gone. You want to talk about baseball? Let's talk about baseball. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal something here. It's a little embarrassing, but that's okay. Um, so, you know, getting ready to podcast, I say things in my head that I might say on the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like I prepare or write anything down, but, you know, you always just say things in your head. And, and I was going to say, um, boy, it's Thursday and there hasn't been any Mets news yet today. Oh, boy. And now you really can't go 24 hours without um, Mets news. Um, and so the Mets had, well, let's, let's start with the baseball, the on the field story. Which is all but gone at this point because of everything else going on, but um, the thumbs down situation, where um, <laughs> I can't even think about it without laughing. It's one of the dumbest, <laughs> even for a team that that marinates in stupid like a steak. This is just one of the dumbest Mets things. Like I, I, I personally, I'll be honest. When all that happened, I was I was almost entirely offline, so I didn't see it until about 12 hours after it all broke. And let me tell you, trying to put that story together after the fact was extremely confusing, mostly because the first, I remember the first tweet I saw about it was, and just from a reporter who I will leave nameless just because I found the tweet so kind of histrionic, but it made it sound like Baez, like Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor had quite literally murdered someone. Yeah. And then I, I dig a little deeper and I find it's that they were just doing it, not just doing a thumbs down celebration, but to me, actually, the funniest part also that they've been doing it for a month and no one had noticed <laughs> exactly. because there were so few positive opportunities for them to celebrate. <laughs> and then Javi Baez, I guess, just got bored and was like, eh, we're just doing it because we just we hate the fact that the fans don't like us. And somehow that becomes a thing when if you ask any Mets fan, they will say, yes, we do hate them. We hate all the players on the Mets. No yeah, one hates the Mets more than Mets fans do, except maybe Phillies fans. They're a miserable group, and and with good reason at times. Um, but you know, obviously, Javi Baez and they they thumbs down, and I, you know, this would never be a story in Denver or Phoenix or Miami, but it's New York, and New York has a highly competitive media market, and everything's under the microscope, and everybody went nuts, and the next day, um, like Javi Baez gives a you know a very rote apology. Um, that I'm sure was written for him and, uh, and then scores the winning run and loses his earring. And it, it and it's all, it's all, you know, perfectly over. Like it, it, it is different because they're the Mets. Like it is because people are, because they're the Mets, people are looking for it. Right. Yeah. And I think it doesn't help that this franchise just has a propensity to blow things out of proportion, no matter what they are. I mean, it, it, it's just part of it is like part of it is, I think, the the weird level of secrecy and basically a, a total lack of desire to be transparent about the things that happened within the franchise. That certainly was a hallmark of the Wilpon years. And for whatever reason, and I imagine we'll get into the specific reason, continues to be the case with this year's Mets. But some of it, too, is just like you said, this is a media market that is all over you at all times. That is. I mean, we have three major newspaper, two major tabloids competing with the three, if you count Newsday, um, which granted serves a slightly different both readership and area, but three major tabloids all competing with each other for the same news and scoops. You have obviously uh, beat writers for other publications like The Athletic, The Times, 
Uh, I know the Journal checks in every now and then, but mm-hmm. you have a lot of media members here, plus a lot of national media members who live in New York who just happen to pop in. The Mets obviously are a fascinating team for 18 million different reasons. And I think that, you know, when you have and, and the Yankees do this too somewhat, but the Yankees are also less inclined to do it because they're more your your stuffy older brother than your kind of screw up younger brother than <laughs> that, that the Mets are. Um, who just exactly keeps getting kicked out. He just are. keeps getting kicked kicked out of different schools. And like right. if you give him five hundred bucks this time, he's really gonna turn it around. But I think that something about being on the back pages just kind of drives both franchises a little insane and the Mets more so than the Yankees, because I know one of the things that the Wilpons and, and Fred Wilpon in particular was always both uh, conscious of and adamant about was that the Mets essentially win the back pages, that the stories, you know, that they not only make the biggest news, but that they make the good news. You know, you don't want to be on the back page of the post with some pun tearing you to pieces over a 10 game losing streak or a bad free agent signing or something. And certainly this thumbs down thing felt to me like something I, I can imagine in the team offices because they're I mean, I can't speak to exactly who, but I can imagine the feeling was this fan base is already so furious and so primed to explode. We need to get out ahead of this and ensure them that, hey, no, the guys who you pay money to see do not actively despise you. Yeah. But in the it, process, you just you turn it from something that is just so pissant and stupid big, yeah. to a whole a, a, to a multi-day news story that just makes you look stupid in the process. And I, it's funny because like, I, you know. Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor put their thumbs down. Like, whatever, it's my first reaction. But then, you know, and, and partially maybe comes from my experience. It's just that I, I, I end up mad at them because they've created so much work for other people who didn't need it. You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's the other thing. Like, how many of the Mets beats really wanted to be sitting down and writing a 700-word note story about Javi Baez issuing a, like you said, a, a almost certainly written by someone else apology for doing something that does not require an apology? It was just insane. And, and, and you know, just when it seemed like, again, Javi Baez, uh, you know, key to a to a late inning win, scoring the winning run, um, in a very exciting game, really fun one, and and that's you know Javi Baez can do that, and you know yesterday afternoon, uh, doing some work, and then I was on the phone with with our mutual friend Eric Longenhagen, and Eric says, "You see the Zach Scott thing that just broke?" I said, "No, I'm talking to you." And uh, Mets general manager Zach Scott was arrested for, I want to get this right, I believe he was driving while intoxicated. It was DWI, yeah. It was a WI. Yeah. Um, and was found uh, asleep in his car and and bad enough. And then it turns out he was leaving a Mets charity event at the home of Steve Cohen um, in, in luxurious White Plains, New York, where a lot of the luxurious people live. And, um, and today it comes out that... that uh, general manager Zach Scott has been placed on administrative leave uh, pending, I don't know what, pending something. Yeah, I was going to um, say, even if he does get convicted on the charge, or if, if he skates on it, or, well, you know what I mean, what exactly is there for the team to figure out? Right. I don't, I mean, they, they'd have, they don't have a four, if he does, I think if he skates, they don't have a four cause anymore. That's what I, yeah, that makes sense. But I, um, I just, I, I mean, I understand it. It's just the, it's the, it's the procedural legal way just to say he's not doing his job right now because he got caught drunk in a car. Yeah, exactly. And so as a friend of the podcast, former guest, Disha Thosar tweeted, uh, so Sandy Allison agreed to be the Mets team president for owner Steve Cohen last offseason under the assumption that he would have a president of baseball operations and a GM in the front office. Now, Alderson has no general manager or president of baseball operations and is assuming all three positions. Um, there's, you know, it theoretically, 
this team needs a complete house cleaning in terms of the front office. Um, now the question is, will they? Yeah, and I, I mean, this is kind of the thing, and this is why I, why I said before, you know, that you know, there's if there's one consistent through line from the chaos of the Wilpons to the chaos of this Mets season, it's Sandy Alderson, and it feels. It feels weird to say that because especially, you know, considering his place, not just in baseball history, but also in sabermetric history and how important he was to making that movement a thing. And just, you know, in, in the work he did with the A's back in the 80s, you know, I, you don't want to say like Sandy Alderson is, is is someone that baseball doesn't need. But at the at this point, it's very clear that he is not. There's something very wrong because. Yeah, I mean, 12 months ago, one of the most respected people in baseball, but at the same time, um like he hired Jared Porter and he hired Jared Porter. He hired Zach Scott. I believe right. he did hire Zach Scott, correct? Uh, well, I mean, Porter hired Zach Scott. Porter, okay. But, but, but yeah, but that's you know, that front office is his creation. It's still the, under his watch, right? Yeah. And and that's saying not only that, but everything tied back to the Mickey Calloway scandal, who was hired, who was someone who was hired by Sandy Alderson, uh, as well as everything that's gone on just with the Mets generally that he has been involved in. To me, the, to me, the moment I think, you know, I, I figured Steve Cohen is not going to let go of Sandy Alderson literally in the middle of the first year he's working for no. him because that suggests a level of a total lack of control that, you know, is, is going to be extremely unappealing to anyone who would want that job going forward. But to me, the moment when the when the both when the Zach Scott allegations came out and then later when the uh, Mickey Calloway stuff picked up again, which the Calloway stuff in particular been an open secret in the game for literally since he'd been the Mets manager so right very interesting to see that one pop up again but just the it, to me it was the way he responded to that this very defensive kind of you know this you know that he considered that it almost felt like he considered the problem more to be that people were asking about it and less that it had happened and that to me just suggests that there is something about the Sandy Alderson decision making process that is probably irreparably broken because you one you get one guy turns out to be uh you know a, a bad dude in some capacity fine mistakes happen you know yep. things things slipped through the cracks two guys now you really got some questions three guys no that that suggests that the vetting process being being used for these guys is completely and utterly wrong and or perhaps even more con concerning that the connection sandy alderson has throughout the industry to the people who work in the industry that these people are simply not being judged or looked at on whatever they're doing outside of what they happen to be doing in the, you know, in the, in the front office offices. What do you guys I, call those? In the front office, but I think, okay. but it's, it's as someone who's worked inside a front office, I think it's almost certainly the latter. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing. It's like, it's funny when you consider too that, um, and not, not to impugn anyone unfairly, but that Porter at least, and I believe Scott are part of the Theo Epstein front office tree. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I, I, someone I follow on Twitter uh, reposted Wright Thompson's piece on, on Theo from the 2016 season. And there's stuff in there that certainly, you know, doesn't rise to the level of criminality, really. But there's stuff in there where you're like, oh, this is just a pure frat boy culture. You yeah. guys are just frat boys. This, you know, all the, all, the, all the pranks, the teasing, the way they talk around each other, the fact that it's all a bunch of just kind of 20 or, or not 20 something, but 30 something white guys at this point, And then the, the 20 something interns that they hideously abused um it, it it just suggests that it's like yeah that this in part the pool is the problem that these are yeah, guys who I are mean, just they 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 have, they have lived this life they are used to this life and they have no one telling them don't live this life and i imagine too that because now you know baseball is so much more 
kind of quant oriented that a lot of these guys are coming out of finance too and the culture there is 10 times worse when it comes to that stuff and you know have it it's and I, was gonna, I guess I was going to make this point more when we talked about the MLB Network COVID stuff, but like baseball, people who live in baseball live in a bubble. Yeah, that's um, it. And, and it's it's a very thick walled bubble. It is a very stable bubble. It doesn't break, and you don't leave it. And it's 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 um, at it times just some, just utterly no basis in reality because so many people have have you know spent their whole life in baseball, either playing or, or working within it, and there's just kind of literally no concept of how the real world works at all. It also doesn't strike me as something having a particularly large or really any amount of diversity when it comes to the people you interact with or work with. Or very alongside. little. Yeah, very little. Um, it's getting better. And when I say better, it's, it's you know, 17% of where it should be. Right. Um, as opposed to maybe 5% like it was before. It's getting better, um, but it's still far from okay. Um, but it is it is a bubble. Um, and, and there's a weird mindset there and it's just it's baseball 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 and and very little else matters or or is understood yeah and i and i wonder too if like if that i mean i i do think that alderson is probably done after this year i wonder if it's going to be framed as a stepping away retiring whatever you want to call it, because well, Alderson's I mean, also he he's not on the, he's not on the young side either that's the thing no not at all um and i do wonder if it's between everything that's happening that if you feel i mean i I, I do not know Sandy Alderson personally. I've not talked to him. I have no idea how he feels on the subject. I do wonder if there is any feeling in his mind that this has just become too much. I do wonder what the feeling is among the rest of the Mets. Although the funny thing is, if this is an Alderson front office, who in there would be? If you do want to, well, do things a, get we, yeah. I mean, things get weird if you want to have this conversation. So Sandy's seventy three. Yeah. Um, and his son Bryn, who. I mean, I should say, like, I've dealt with Brennan and I've always enjoyed my interactions with Bren. Um, uh, has was a promoted to, to AGM um, a couple of months ago or a month ago. Um, and in, it's been tweeted today, like, he's going to be stepping up even a little more. But all of a sudden, he's got some baggage just because of his last name. Yeah. And I mean, which is to a degree unfair to him, but it's also, I mean, part of why he is where he is, is because he is Sandy Alderson's son. There's quite literally no way around that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, we'll see. What, I, you know, it's. I just you just get the feeling that we're going to get more Mets stories. We are, and just I for think the rest it's of the year. Like it's, it's it almost feels like they just can't get away from it. And ha- having once worked for a team who couldn't get away from it themselves, like it's 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 a lot. Well, <laughs> it, it, on you. it also just speaks so poorly of Steve Cohen, though, doesn't it? Like. I mean, I don't think Steve knew what he was getting into, and I think Steve. Which, but that's that's kind of the thing to me. That's what speaks so poorly to me about it. But so that's how, how billionaires you... are. Like they just think they can do everything. Yeah, which the one thing I don't get, and, and this probably speaks more to his just personality than anything else. How is he still tweeting through all of this? Mm-hmm. Like, it, shouldn't there be some at least one person in the organization to tell him the last thing you need to be doing right now is tweeting? Yeah, don't never tweet. Like Basically, just never tweet tell, in, in someone person. should just send him the never for, tweet tweet and say and put it on a t-shirt and say wear this under your under your suit every day. Yeah, because like all you're doing is making it look worse with your extremely out of touch and borderline nonsensical statements. <laughs> the one that always the one that got me was the one a couple weeks ago about how um why aren't these basically why aren't these guys hitting better? I thought oh, yeah. they were supposed to hit better. And it's like, oh, you! Someone just airlifted you out of 1938 and dropped you here because you basically sound like a like a slightly more with it Tom Yawkey at this point. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's it's just kind of yes. You, you, owners need to be uh, 
not heard in the public about the baseball team. It doesn't. No, help and and I think well, it's a weird thing because I think Mets fans probably have wanted an ownership that at least is more responsive to what's going on, or at least is willing to come out and say stuff like, or one that at least has money and isn't you know doesn't have this you know this giant financial crisis because yeah. they got but, but even, they got but exploited even by a pyramid scheme. But is it the, the feeling I get from Mets fans or have gotten from Mets fans is they don't necessarily mind if the owner, you know, obviously the money is most important, but they also want a sense that the person who runs the team not just cares about the team, but also cares when things go wrong and isn't simply going to hide and not talk to the press and issue sources say statements blaming all the players. And I guess that's the other thing. Like, it doesn't really feel like things have changed in that. Yeah, regard. yeah. When we had Deshaun, she said, like, like you know, you, you get the tweets and it maybe feels from the outside that he's, a, you know, being a more public figure. But he's there's not a lot of availability to people like Deshaun. No, no. And if, and if there is availability, it's it's in the way where he's calling up one reporter or another and saying, hey, here's how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. But you got to keep me on. You got to keep me off, right. uh, on background or whatever it is. Um. Just moving away from the Mets for a second, because we I, need to. Something all Mets fans wish they could do <laughs> in the depths of their hearts is move away from the Mets. Really is the most toxic baseball relationship is Mets and Mets fans. So, uh, you know, it's September 2nd, and COVID's still here. And, uh, you know, we'll obviously talk to, to Julian McWilliams about the Red Sox and their COVID issues, but I thought an interesting, a couple interesting COVID stories came out this week. Um and the first involves MLB Network. Um, and I got excited when I first saw it. So I was like, good for them. Like, they're not going to let Al Leiter and John Smoltz, um, two ex-players who refused to get the vaccine, in the studio. I was like, that's great. Look at that. Taking a stand. Good for you. Major League Baseball did something right. We don't get to say it enough. I'm going to say it. Let's let's praise them. And then I read the rest of the article. And they've actually just come to an agreement with them. And, like, Smoltz is still going to do games on site. And you're like, So he's not. he's not... It's not safe to put him near people in the studio, but, but it is safe to stadium. put him near people in a different studio. Right. And, 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 and to be honest with you, like if you've seen MLB Network Studio, even on television, you get a, can get a sense of the size of that, right? Yeah. Um, a TV booth in a stadium is tiny, is smaller than the office I'm sitting in right now. Yeah. Um, and it is packed. With and you know, I, I know like when you watch the game, you can see, you know, you get the one, you know, the camera shot of the two of them, but there's like, there's them, there's often a camera person in there. There's a producer, sometimes two. There's a you know just a tech person taking making sure all the wires stay plugged in. Um, people are re- it's it's really close quarters, um, and so I don't. It just you know I understand the company taking a stand and having people needed to be vaccinated. It's a it's a thing I think I totally support that stand. Um, and then just but just still like kind of I don't know strike a deal with them so they can do their dangerous stuff elsewhere. Just kind of feels gross. Yeah, and and that's kind of it's like, and, and this is this is obviously going to veer into the realm of the political tied to baseball. But at this point, it's like if the 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 pandemic and the vaccine are an inextricable and and, and an inextricable part of the of baseball right now. There's no way to talk about it without talking about the broader kind of cultural feeling behind it. I do wonder if we do get to a point, and I'm not sure who would make it happen because I'm kind of short on on I on a potential people in my own mind but do we need to get to a point where the vaccine becomes mandatory for not just for players not just for team staff but for everyone involved in this because it just makes no sense to have this 
this set of rules where, like you said, MLB did the right thing. They said, you know, you cannot be in studio because there are a lot of people in there and they're exposing to too many people if you're not vaccinated. But it's a, like you said, it doesn't make any sense. But then, but you can be in a smaller room with other right. people That's who may or may studio. not be vaccinated themselves or who may or may not have high risk contacts or whatever else. It, it just, it makes no sense. And especially the, the one that really gets me, and I, I imagine you're going to bring it up because it's the other big baseball COVID news is the Bob Boone stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna, we are going to get to that in a second. Yeah, um, which... But just on like everything about just the way that the sport has handled it. And, you know, they have tried to some degree their best and they in other ways have not come close to what could be their best, I think. Well, and I think we're seeing that now with like what the NFL and the NBA is doing. Yeah. You know, we're and we, you know, and I get that Major League Baseball had a timing issue and the season started before shots were even before players were even eligible to get shots. I understand that, um, you know, but I think, you know legally and and we were seeing it like we crossed a huge threshold when um when the pfizer vaccine got uh, approved by the fda um there's now a model in place that i think you know i don't follow basketball and football at all but it, like seems to be effective um you know i i saw a tweet today someone retweeted and like it, i just looked at it and went nod my head like some basketball team i can't even remember who i think it was milwaukee are now 100 not 85 100 vaccinated yeah the um, buck uh, the Tampa bay buccaneers just got to 100 percent or announced that they're at 100 and that's a football team that's like 70 people right yeah not just and not just a lot of people but also kind of similar culturally with regards to baseball a lot of guys who are either conservative or, or kind of lean that direction or mm-hmm. who have anti-vax beliefs and we've seen we've already heard from plenty of them cole beasley on the bills has just been non-stop with that and and but and they did it by putting in incentives or i guess more accurately disincentives yeah and that's the thing like the disincentive as far as i remember and correct me if i'm wrong because it feels like it was approximately a trillion years ago that this was first announced that for the 85 percent vaccination threshold the incentive was that you no longer had to follow whatever close contact the, slash you, you, quarantine yeah, you, rules you weren't you weren't under the 2020 protocols anymore right um i would like to have thought that that would have been enough for some guys. Or it's for a all lot, guys. too. It's Especially a lot. on top of the idea that if you get the vaccine, you have dramatically lowered your chances both of getting sick and of being out for an extended period of time if you do get sick. And as we're seeing in Boston, in causing a full-blown team outbreak. Yeah, I mean, I obviously, I think the logic behind any sort of anti-vax stuff is already eradicated. No, so it, it's, any, it's, anything it's, from there is just like, yeah, of it's course. Like trying to, it's like trying to argue with pudding. There's no point. Like, what, what, what is what? What what are you going to say that's going to change the fundamental nature of what you're arguing with? Like, there it's operating from a basis of total un, like non-reality. But yeah, I I I just don't really see. It, assuming the pandemic is still with us at the start of next season, and that's not a guarantee, but yeah, I don't <laughs> really see. <laughs> you get what an uplifting episode this is. Everybody, we're all going to burn, we're all or drown, and that's if the pan. But that's if the COVID doesn't get us first. But assuming that there is still some form of pandemic, or at least some form of COVID control next year, I don't really see how the league doesn't institute some kind of mandatory vaccination policy. Mm-hmm. Because if nothing else, leaving aside whatever damage this does to to the to the teams, to the players, to anyone else. I don't really think Rob Manfred wants a third straight year of dealing with this no. and making it look like MLB just simply cannot get this under control. And I think you just need to put in something that, you know, somewhat similar to the NFL thing where if, you know, pick a number, three player, like you have three players with COVID, like you're done. You, you can't, you can't play and it's a forfeit. You lose the game. Yeah. To it be costs, honest, it I'm, costs I'm, you games. 
I'm amazed that Boston isn't at that point. They've lost something like 11 players. They've lost right. close to half their roster. You know, and, and the the Brewers had an outbreak that they had to manage. And, you know, it was just this revolving door for, you know, like three weeks of, you know, they used like 35 players. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see that either, that they're, you know, you have to, there's been a lot of carrot offered. And I think it's pretty obvious at this point that the stick needs to be broken out. Yeah. Because... There are too many guys. This is the thing that gets me. I know we're going to talk to Julian about it, but just that, you know, having seen that the Red Sox still had not reached that 85% threshold, which is set all the way back in March, I believe, at the start of spring training. Well, it's costing them. It's costing them their season. And it's now literally going to cost them a playoff spot if they don't get it together, if they don't recover from it quickly enough. You know, you would think that that alone would have been enough to get everyone on that team lined up to say, I don't want to be the reason we don't make the playoffs. Right, right. But. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and so the other COVID story that we talked, we mentioned, um, it is, it, it, it's September. It's, it's, um, in terms of front offices, it is turnover season. Um, this is when people get fired or to use the baseball front office term, non-renewed. Um, and, uh, the, the nationals who, um, I don't know if there are more teams. I know publicly there are two teams, the nationals and the Houston Astros who are both, um, requiring, um, vaccinations for their for their nups non-uniform personnel mm-hmm. and um the nationals uh had a, a lot of turnover in their scouting department they they uh, non-renewed eight scouts four from the international side four from the domestic side um and it turns out uh, i believe brit giroli was reported as a friend of the front of the podcast former guest that uh two of those were let go um because they refused to get the vaccine. Um, one of them being a longtime baseball guy, Bob Boone, also in his early 70s. Um, if anyone needs the vaccine, obviously someone in their early 70s. I don't know how much of this was just Bob Boone saying, I'm done, I'm ready to retire, and I can do go out on a political stand, <laughs> um, which I think is quite possible. I just That's the stand you want to go out on, though? Uh, yeah. No, I do not want the free, life-saving vaccine. That's the bubble they live in, man. And, um, Especially, like you said, a 74-year-old man whose son has had heart surgery. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's uh, uh, it, it's just be, it's beyond it's beyond me to a degree that I, like, I, I don't even know what you say about it, because what can you say about it? Yeah, you know? no, it's just, it's just, it's absolutely baffling. And um, so, you know, Boone and another scout were both let go. Um, I, Boone says he retired. I, I could have been mutually agreed upon. Who knows? And um, the two or two, you know, two you know, members of the National Scouting Group are, are out because um, they refused to get the vaccine. Um, and I, it's, you know, baseball has the right to do this as well. Um, forgetting about the players and, 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 um, what are publicly known as the tier one people, which is kind of the, the people traveling with the team. Right. Um, but baseball has the right and, and could impose like the tier two and tier three people need to be vaccine vaccinated as well. And obviously a couple of teams have done this on their own accord. Um, and I wonder how this is going to affect things now. And, and, and will more teams take this count as well? Cause they're just like you have people in that baseball world bubble there's plenty of them in front offices and scouting departments especially in this kind of world as well um you know people who came up you know playing the game and they went right into scouting and i guess this is this is their world and it's a it's it's the bubble and 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 here they are and i i don't think this is the last one who's going to get popped for not getting vaccinated no, and you saw with the NFL too when they announced their their mandates. Didn't that coach similar. hang him up? Yeah, there there are a couple of of coaches I saw who who said no, I would rather quit than be forced to get the vaccine. 
Um, and of course, it's all being couched in the it's my choice. It's my personal responsibility. I don't want to be told what to do. Mandates are unconstitutional, whatever, whatever misinterpretation of the First Amendment is currently being deployed. But yeah, I, I, I think and then this kind of ties into the Mets thing, too, that this baseball, I think, for so long has been able to exist kind of on the outside of society and culture, or at least it hasn't had to respond so fully to the forces that exist within the regular world. Baseball has just kind of always been its own thing. That certainly, like, what happens in the outside world affects it, but I think the pandemic is one of those things and, you know, one of the first things in a while where baseball just hasn't been able to say, okay, that's happening, but that doesn't affect us. Whoop, close it out. You know, it doesn't really matter to us. No, you have to deal with it. And the way you have to deal with it reflects the, you know, it, it can't be the way that, that it was dealt with over the last, over in 2020. It's got to be the way it's been dealt with this year, which is, no, we, we are putting an end to this. Or we're going to try our best to do it. And if you're not going to get online with that, then you have to go. And there are consequences. And, and I do think that that is the, like, you know, I, I think that the starting with the, as you called them, the NUPS, which I love, I love that acronym. <laughs> um, I think it probably will ramp up over the course of the offseason to include more and more people. And I think by the time spring training rolls around, if, like I said, if we are still dealing with it, I do think that the league will say vaccines are mandatory for players. Yeah. And it's going to be really interesting to see which older veterans who are kind of either at toward the end of their career right Jer- jake arietta's gonna say i'm retiring and they're yeah gonna, and that's the and, thing and, and the world's gonna say like, that's fine yeah and that's like no one's gonna sign jake arietta next year because he's terrible now but he's going to make a point of saying i'm quitting and hanging it up because i don't want to get vaccinated if he somehow manages to make it all the way to next march without getting vaccinated mm-hmm. i don't know maybe the vaccine would make him better i mean jesus tried everything else why not <laughs> those 5g chips can't hurt maybe they make your maybe they make you better they, they I, try they, jake they might um let's talk about baseball john actual baseball (laughs) um it is it is the first week of september um as you look at the standings today the tampa bay rays have a seven game lead in the east the white Sox have a 10 game lead in the central the astros uh have a five game lead in the west that was larger a couple days earlier the milwaukee brewers are now up 10 and a half in the national league central we do, do we have anything compelling other than the National League East and West at this point? No. And, the, the and is that going to make is, for a more boring September? The funny thing is the National League West will only be compelling so long as the Dodgers and Giants are able to stay close. And not that they won't, but the last Dodgers-Giants series of the season is this weekend. So the compelling part of the oh, NL is that? I didn't even be, know that. This, this is it? This I know this weekend's obviously this is a it. series. I they, know they, they played play each again. other so much, not just in the first half of the season, but it feels like they played each other 15 times in the month of, in the months of July and August. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's gonna be that's gonna be it for them. So the compelling part isn't gonna be even them head to head. It's gonna be them side by side. Right. Uh, I don't know what the schedule looks like for Atlanta and Philadelphia. How many head to head games they have left? But that's also just less compelling to me because that's less about two teams competing and more. Oh, just, this is this is just it's, it just feels the, the East feels far far more like a, a battle of attrition. No, the e, yeah the East is just who's left standing. Um, it, it's the East is like. It's like one of those obstacle courses from Double Dare or one of those other Nickelodeon game shows where it's just covered in slime and goop and there's weird stuff everywhere. And it's just <laughs> who's going to make it to the end still standing and least covered in slime? Because like the Mets right now are just drowning in a small pool, in a small kiddie pool of slime. Like the Marlins never even got going. The Nationals just gave up. They just turned around halfway through and they're like, you know what? I don't feel like finishing this. And... Especially too, because it's a the Atlanta the Braves are good right now, but it's also it's the Braves without their most compelling thing, Ronald Acuna. So that that in and of itself kind of takes away part of the compelling aspect, I think, of the NL East. Especially too, when you feel like if you were 
like if you were to draw out right now, let's say the let's say the the NL playoff picture is um, Atlanta, Milwaukee, both of the Dodgers and Giants, and who's in the second wild card currently? Is Reds of the Padres. The Reds of the Padres. One of those five. Um, how I mean, do you feel good about Atlanta minus Acuna against? No, maybe not any of those teams, but coming out of that field of of no, not the at teams. All. No, and no. that's the thing, and, and you wouldn't feel you'd feel even worse if it were the Phillies that managed to get to get a hold of the East. Right, and the two teams do play each other for three more games. Um, at the end of this month, they have a three-game set in Atlanta. Okay, but that's all. The only about. the only annoying thing I find about the the very very end of season series is that usually by this by that point it's mathematically impossible for things to change enough. So right. one team is going in, both teams are going in there with, eh, I guess. Right, unless unless they're tied or something, it's not unless they're tied. Great. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, some one of the more interesting stories then for September, for especially for teams like, you know, the, the White Sox and the Rays and the Brewers and, and eventually I think the Astros is, is like how they manage the last month in terms of workload. We've seen um, an incredible amount of injuries this year. Um, you know, pitcher workloads is special, especially concerning for, for teams and, and, you know, coming off of what happened in 2020. And like if. You know how you don't want to shut guys down because you're never sure they're going to ramp up. But I, I, I you know, how much their teams are going to try to manage days off and and extra skips and things like that, or even just going to, you know, six seven man rotations just to kind of ramp guys into the playoff as opposed to just kind of going as is and and taking too big a risk. Yeah, and I think you probably already saw that to some degree with with the White Sox putting Lance Lynn on the injured list for a knee strain that. I would wager is probably minor enough that if, if this were right, if it, serious, if it was he'd October, just, he'd be thrown. He'd pitch, he'd pitch through it. But for now, like you said, they're ten games up in the division. Cleveland is no real threat to to erase that deficit in in thirty days or however many days mm. are left in the season. And the Brewers you know, did similarly with with Freddie Peralta recently. Yeah, and it's, it's like just the, a minor little hey, this hurts a little bit. Great, we'll shut you down for a little bit. Yeah, and I imagine too, you're going to be seeing guys like Corbin Burns or Brandon Woodruff or you know. Or maybe even a guy, maybe not even so much those guys because they've been so great and maybe the Brewers don't want to take them out of their rhythm, but maybe more a guy like Lucas Giolito who has struggled of late. You know, maybe maybe that's something to say, we're going to skip you a start or push you back a couple days, take a breather, take a breather, take a break, you know, maybe do some side work to see if there's something that we can figure out. But otherwise, just low effort from here until until the start of October. Uh, if you're if you're in lucky enough a position to do that or or maybe it's like the Rays where they can finally stop playing uh, AAA reliever hot potato and just let guys be there. Just because they're at this point, I I mean, what I'd say their division odds are probably what eighty some, ninety some percent by this point. Yeah, they're close to ninety, I believe. Um, I maybe they're at that point where they say we don't have to keep shuttling guys like this because it's simply not that important anymore. We can just kind of let guys, and not only not only just let guys be, but also take those more important bullpen arms like Andrew Kitteridge or like Colin McHugh, which I can't believe I'm saying that the two most important bullpen arms for an <laughs> AL for a division winning team in 2021 are Andrew Kitteridge and Colin McHugh, but. The Rays, unbelievable. the Rays defy every logical explanation of, of success. Um, but yeah, maybe every they can year. take. Yeah, every year. I've, I, I I joked on another podcast I did earlier this week. I'm I'm done trying to explain them. I give up. Oh I yeah, I've give given up, up years ago. They are very clearly smarter than the rest of us in a way that we can't even like fathom. But maybe for them, it's just saying Andrew, Colin, you guys, you guys are only going to pitch once every three days or whatever it is. We're going to just give you some time off. Similarly with the Yankees, they they don't have that luxury, but. With guys like Loisaga and Chad Green, just to say, you know, we're not going to Aaron Boone, like we're not going to use you as much multi-inning. We want to give you some breathers because when the playoffs come, you guys are going to be throwing two innings every single. We're going to be leaning on you hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go back to the Mets for a second. Um, and and as about 
players themselves where uh, you know the Mets are five and a half out of the wild card, but obviously reeling. Um, the the story in the background the whole time has been the potential return of Jake DeGrom, um, the best pitcher in baseball, who obviously would, would help their, their minuscule chances. Um, should they just shut him down at this point? And, I get, and then the same question goes for you know, another team that's out of it and their superstar who, like, it just seems like it gets endlessly delayed when, you know, he's coming back, he's coming back. No, he's not. No, he's not. And, and Mike Trout. Um, are those two players who just should be kind of packed in styrofoam and, and get ready for February 2022? I'm genuinely surprised that the, that the Angels are maintaining any semblance that Trout's going to be back because there's literally no point. Right. Unless he desperately wants to come back because he just wants to get some competitive at bats before the offseason, which I think he probably for. does. I'm sure. Which is I, understandable. I mean, Mike Trout. Yeah, my, Mike Trout. Everyone, Mike Trout loves playing baseball. I'm sure. And he's that's fine the thing. That's, back. that's the other thing. I'm, he's not the kind of guy I imagine where if he's healthy, he's going to say, "No, you know what? I'm just going to take the rest of the year off, and I'll see you guys in February." No, yeah. he's going to say, "Put me in there. I want to play. I want to play every day. You know, I I need to play every day." And that's one thing. If if he makes it back, I think. And I know. Uh, not only are calf injuries a tricky thing, you just ask Josh Donaldson, whose lower legs at this point are pretty much made of like balsa wood, but you know, those are those kinds of soft tissue injuries can recur because they, you know, they are, he suffered a very serious tear, you know, as a believe a grade two strain, which is a, is a tear. And I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up being worse when they, you know, later after the fact, you know, I think that would be the one thing for the angels be like, we just don't want you to push it because the last thing we need is you re-aggravating this or making it worse and ruining 2022 as well. Um, the, the trout thing that makes me sad is I was editing a piece from Jay Jaffe today on, uh, he's done a two part series this week on, on players, both position players and pitchers have helped their hall of fame cases this year. Yeah. He briefly mentioned trout because trout has barely played this year. So he hasn't really done much to advance what is already a slam dunk hall of fame case. But the thing that scared me was Jay noting or Jay saying, hopefully this doesn't turn into a Ken Griffey Jr.-like slog through his 30s. And that just made me want to crawl into a hole and die. I can't do Ken Griffey Jr. again. I can't (laughs) do it. That hurt young me so badly to watch him just decay in dog years. Or age in dog years, rather. Yeah, I mean, unlike Griffey, this doesn't... I mean, it's obviously this injury has taken much longer than I think anyone expected, but it doesn't feel like the kind of injury that long-term affects you if you once you come back from it ideally but then then like i noted like a guy like and granted donald josh donaldson is is at least six years older than trout and plays like every part of his body is on fire so he's Mm -hmm. way more of a of a of of an injury risk in that regard but he has not been able to shake those hamstring and calf injuries that have just plagued him for basically the last three seasons right and that's my worry with trout is that especially with someone who rely like you know, especially with what it does to his defensive ability and his speed on the base passes, legs just get kind of older, slower, and, and you know, less they bounce back less easily from, from injuries. I think someone pointed out this is one of the longest calf injury absences in recent memory. He's been out yeah. since, I think, the beginning of June. Yeah, and I, 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 it, it, I think it's quite possible that he, he or the team or some combination of those made bad decisions at some point and rushed things and just yeah and they pushed and just yeah. kind of went back to you know oh, yeah right, and they just got back to start to square exactly. one but and that, but that's kind of the thing it's like these are the things that if you do push too hard will just become chronic right and can just become a thing that you can't really ever get a hold of because the only treatment for them beyond surgery if it gets that bad is rest it's, it's literally nothing. all you can do is yep. rest so. I think he's probably going to play again if he does, if he is cleared, because I think he is, like you said, he's 
Mike Trout is very much a ball player in every sense of the word, and he is not going to want to sit and watch. Um, it's unless the Angels tell him point blank, no, we need to see what Brandon Marsh can do as a full-time center fielder, so you right, just right. chill for a little bit. DeGrom, no, there's absolutely no reason at all in bringing him back. No, None. Zero. None. Nothing. Shut if the Mets down. do it, then then all Mets fans should rise as one and tear <laughs> City Field to the ground. They're close anyway. They're close anyway, but I think that would be the thing. If you... And, and this is kind of the other thing with DeGrom. You, I, I understand there are probably two two minds. The, the Mets front office, or what's left of it at this point, is probably of two minds. One is that this fan base is going to murder us if this is how this season continues. They just Bringing, claim Brad Hand. Like, they're go, they're not they're not giving up. No, and, and I think that's part of it. Is we don't want to look like we're giving up, and we, don't, and we want to win the fans back over, slash make them feel like this is still worth it, make them, give them something they love. And I think... As far as the Mets go, with the exception of Keith Hernandez, Jacob DeGrom is pretty much the only thing every Mets fan can agree on is good. It's cool, yeah. So I can understand there's probably that mindset of let's get him back, let's get him another start or two, let's get people excited again, let's get people remembering that, hey, we still have Jacob DeGrom, we're still a good team. Yeah, this season was a total mess, but we're g- things are going to be different next year. You just wait and see. <laughs> the other side of it, though, is what does what on earth does this do for us? Because if he gets hurt, we have destroyed this franchise for the next three years. Right. Like, completely and utterly destroyed it. You know, that, that and that's, that is a hell of a risk-reward calculus, but the, the reward to me just doesn't come anywhere close to the risk of him hurting himself again. Because this, this wasn't a fluke injury. This wasn't he got hit on the hand with a comebacker. No, it's an arm problem. It's an arm problem. And it's been an arm problem all season that he's just, he managed to keep ducking until it finally got him. You know, no, there's, there's, the, the, to me, I just feel like the most Mets thing possible would be to bring him back, but bring him back as a reliever. And just <laughs> inhabit the worst of both worlds. That would be amazing. And not only bring him back as a reliever, but also have Luis Rojas just dry hump him like six times in the final week. <laughs> that That is the most Mets possible way this season can end, is to bring DeGrom back, make him a reliever, screw with him constantly, and then he goes into the offseason saying, I don't feel right. And then request a trade. Here's if you're Jacob Degrom, why do you want to be around this team? What what about this franchise appeals to you at this point? <laughs> the salary, they're good. The sal- yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the fact that you're the normal one in a crowd of <laughs> lunatics. He's a bit of a lunatic himself. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, all pitchers are lunatics. It's yeah, for sure. They're um, all crazy. <laughs> we'll take a break. Everyone, take a breath. Go watch like a YouTube video of like people feeding baby pandas. Yeah, go watch go watch ASMR or go listen to ASMR yes. of, of Jacob DeGrom pitching. I bet that's that I don't know is that a baseball thing that can happen is ASMR of, of pitching? Because I will say, like, I <laughs> I went to I went to I did my first spring training in Arizona a few years ago with SI and I stopped at Reds Camp and while I was there I just happened to catch Luis Castillo throwing a, a, a bullpen session in one of their backfield uh, yeah. cage areas. I had never, I've never been close enough to a major league pitcher throwing to hear what it sounds like. Oh, just just like the wind, just the ball coming going into your. But especially that, Castillo, yeah. it was an audible hiss. Yeah, and then for this sure. like deafening pop when it hit the mitt. And I gotta say, that's a soothing noise. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's the rep, the repetitiveness of it, and the, just the fact that it's just those two noises: that hiss and then the thunk right into the mitt. You can make that happen, or even batting practice ASMR. Yeah, we need to Aaron Judge batting practice ASMR would, would do crazy numbers. Major League to... Baseball, social media, and or YouTube team. You get at me with this. My price yeah. is low for these ideas. 
they start at ten thousand dollars per. Let's create the YouTube channel ourselves. We'll make millions. Yeah, I mean that's hey, we we have the Twitch channel for fan yeah. graphs. We'll just we'll get Dylan just to 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 wire up some mics somewhere. <laughs> or we can just get fan graphs ASMR, and it's just it's just Eric running through the top one hundred, literally start to finish. <laughs> Eric has a very soothing voice. He I does. Yes, find. for sure. Uh, so we'll come back. We'll talk to uh, Julian McWilliams from the Boston Globe about the Red Sox and their COVID issues. Uh, and then after that, we'll talk about our musical guest. You're going to listen to right now the song from Helen Money, and then we'll read your emails and talk about some other things. So stick around. <laughs>
Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. Our special guest is the Red Sox beat reporter for the Boston Globe. Previously, he covered the Oakland A's for The Athletic, and I believe is the only beat guy with a page on baseball reference, if you look him up, after a, a storied career at Ohio University in beautiful Athens, Ohio, as well as Temple. He played for Las Vegas in the Pico League in 2014, went two for 18 with seven strikeouts and no walks. You got to work the count better, Julian. I know, man. I know. I know. <laughs> Joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in St. Petersburg, Florida, as he's there with the team as they play the Rays, it is Julian McWilliams. Julian, how are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm a fan of what you guys do and uh, and, and, and uh, know how important it is to the business, so I appreciate it. <laughs> We found the one fan. Excellent. Um, I kind of want to start with the the here and now uh, of the Boston Red Sox. You know, obviously they were in first place. They are no longer in first place. Uh, we have reached the final month in the season, and they are basically playing with a triple A roster um, with one of the nastier COVID outbreaks we've seen in baseball this year. Um, what has that been like for the team? And I also kind of want to get in, like, what have the mechanics been like for you covering this story? Um, it's, 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 well, it's not funny, but it's like, it's, it's wild. It's like, it's, it's wild. You gotta laugh. <laughs> yeah. It's wild to really, uh, sort of be a, be a part of, I think the, uh, the team itself, it's, I know Cora, especially, and, you know, a couple other guys are sort of walking on eggshells, right? I think it's this, this thing that's like, okay, like, yes, this might've been, I was just telling somebody, this might've been a case where, you know, we, 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 these are breakthrough cases that they say a lot of them are breakthrough cases, but then it's like, well, did the Red Sox do everything they could to prevent this? You know, you still have that thought in back of your head. Well, it could have been this person could have been this person who wasn't vaccinated, who got it or something like that. And they haven't reached the 85% threshold. Uh, I think they're one of seven teams who haven't reached the 85% mark. So even if they are breakthrough cases, you still have that thought in back of your head that, you know, we didn't do enough um, as a, as a collective group and sort of, um, you know, guys on this team have failed us in with something that sort of potentially, you know, could have been uh, preventable. You know, obviously you had the Yankees cases where you had the breakthrough cases and they're at the 85% threshold, but um, the recovery period in which those guys, a lot of, a lot of those guys are able to get back on the field was a lot, you know, um, sooner. I mean, this is just, I mean, it's just gutted the entire roster, right? You're just looking at from Kike to Christian to Xander. I mean, their whole middle infield is like just AAA guys, as you said. And then Josh Taylor was a big part of their bullpen, and they're already having bullpen problems. Matt Barnes, even though he's been struggling, um, it's 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 ravaged their whole group, and they're having to sort of adjust on the fly. And you know, I know there's um, probably players or certain players that are uncomfortable playing right now because it's like you know, am I going to be the next one to get it? Does this person have it? I'm touching the same ball. Like it sort of feels like out here, at least um, that we're back to square one where we were in terms of like spring training, where it's like, can we do this? Can we not do this in 2020? Can we, when it first hit us, it's like, you know, it's this sort of this collective feeling of like, can I near be near this person? Even me, when you talk about covering it, when I'm going down to the field, I'm like, should I be down here? Right? Like, is it is? Yes, I have a job to do. But am my life matters more than this. And, you know, my wife, you know, is is eight months pregnant, and I have to go back home. Okay, right. well, I'm, now I need to get get a COVID test. So like, 
life still happens, right? Like these people have to go back and see their families um, and stuff like that. And so after being around this for so long, and then I couldn't imagine like if I were like a Xander Bogarts and like, you know, I might've some tests had to wait for some tests to come through. And, and, and that in the meantime, me waiting, I have COVID and I could have passed it on to, you know, somebody else. And if that me as a, as a person who's now about to have a family and I didn't know if I were positive around my, around my wife and she's pregnant and I gave it to her, I would, that would be like, I would, I don't know what, I, I would be devastating. So um, there's this, this feeling of like, what can you do? What should you do? And it's not, it's, it's, it's not a fun time for any, any of us. Are, I mean, are you going onto the field? I did. And, and it's so, and it's so, and it's so, it's so, um, yesterday, yesterday I did, and I don't think I'll probably go today, but I, yeah, I'm wearing my mask and I'm not really, I'm not near guys, but it's, it's, it's wild because the day before yesterday, and this is sort of like, I got like the, like the sort of like the heebie jeebies when after he said it to me, Xander Bogarts comes up to me and says, or comes up to like us, like me and like two other PR people. It's like, Hey guys, like, are you guys sure you want to be down here? Like yeah. and all this stuff. Wow. And then a day later he gets it. And he's like, he's like, with all this stuff going on, it's like, I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. And that prompted me to go back to the, up to the clubhouse because I saw a lot, too many of guys, like a group of guys coming toward me. And I'm like, yeah, he's probably right. Let me go back up to, to the press box rather. And, um, I, yeah. And, and then a day later he comes, he comes down with COVID. And, and so that just kind of just goes to, to, to like, to show you, it's just like, you, you don't know who's walking around with this. Um, are you, are you going to like get tested when you get home? Or, oh, absolutely. Or I'm I, getting tested. I'm getting tested tomorrow before I get on, a, before I get on a plane. Gotcha. You know, it's like, I'm not, I don't, I, I just don't want to risk it and be near my wife, you know, and, and stuff like that before, you know, getting back home. So, I mean, before when I'm, I would just, I just wouldn't be able to live myself if I, if I, if I were to have it and bring it in the house. So yeah, I'm absolutely going to get tested. So I haven't, I, I went on the field for a bit yesterday, but then again, I left and I was like, and but I wasn't near any players and stuff like that. It's mainly for me to just be down there and like, and watch like, um, infield and BP, but like in terms of me being near guys and, and interviewing them, no, nah, it's, that's not, that's not happening right now. Uh, I mean, you talked about how the Red Sox are one of the, the, the minority of teams who have not reached 85% threshold. Some other teams have had players who have been um, more vocal anti-vax people. Um, do the Red Sox have those players? And and have has anyone asked them about their stance at this point? Having, you know, with this greatly diminishing their chances of reaching the postseason? Yeah, well, it, it's... It's wild, right? Like you, you have it on both sides. So you have people that, and it's it's unfortunate that it's become um, political, like in a sense. Of course. Like it's, um, you have people that obviously have cer- certain political beliefs and certain ideals, and it's like I won't get the vaccine. And then you have people who have those same political beliefs on the team, or you know, and they have gotten the vaccine. They just don't want to say it publicly because. Um, it might, you know, have people that are aligned with their beliefs outside of the vaccine, um, you know, sort of looking at them funny. It's like, you know, you're sort of disrespecting your, your, you know, your friends or your, you know, allies or whatever, whatever parents. I don't, I don't know. Like, so they just don't say it publicly. So like, there have been people on the team that are vaccinated and they just won't say they are vaccinated because it's like, eh, I don't want to upset that you know, my, my, my crowd, that's more so. They actually see getting vaccinated as a bad look. Exactly. 
so uh, so like they're so it's it's really really hush hush on this team um it's like it's not like the the jason hayward situation where he's like coming out and say hey well i don't you know I, i'm not getting it or i think anthony rizzo said he wants to check into it more and it's the red sox really don't really have guys like that um i think um jd martinez said something about it like it's a you know it's a personal decision or something like that. And they keep going with this whole personal decision thing now it's like well it's it's affecting people outside of like outside of like your you all's personal space so it's like it's having a public wide effect so it's like it's clearly not just like a personal decision right in my, in my opinion i think it i think it goes it, it goes deeper than that but um i i it's just for from from my pers- my point of view i think it i'm from from my perspective it's very very um um tight-lipped around here in terms of like who got it and who didn't get it um i i know i know some players who've gotten it i know some players who haven't gotten it um on on the team and and obviously that's that's their that's their business um but uh yeah it's 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 not it's not something that that people actually like really talk about hey julian how because one thing i remember seeing from a couple of the other beats and uh yourself might have been included but my tweet deck column for that is just never never stops moving are the red sox past the vaccination threshold yet of 85 percent? they didn't reach it they have not reached it are, is there and they're not even with all of this is there i mean have, have you heard anyone i guess you're not in the clubhouse but has there been any discussion around the team of hey anyone who hasn't gotten it yet now would be a really good time to do that I think I think that they said in the beginning the needle uh, um, in the beginning of the season they got the needle to move a little bit but since then it just hasn't moved right I think it just hasn't necessarily done anything and even to a point where Heim Bloom yesterday he talked and he said and I think uh, my colleague Pete Abraham asked him about like you know free agents I mean uh, acquiring players moving forward and right. if the vaccine will would sort of play a role and he says you know i think we would have to look at that as an industry and take a step back and obviously that's something that i think that we possibly might have to consider but then we in addition to that considering the rights of the players and you know their decisions also so it's a lot deeper than that but you can obviously see that like he's probably like in, in the back of his mind he said you know he said publicly he said people that don't get the, the vaccine in this organization it pains me you know and so Obviously, he's he's voices his opinion that he's a proponent of the vaccine and a proponent of all that, and and it's become a competitive advantage. You know, you're looking at a team that um, was like you said was in first place. They haven't really been playing good baseball since like the July July since like July fourth weekend, I think, in Oakland. But like they were still in pretty good shape, right? I think Kike Hernandez was having a really breakout season this year and really really great second half and was doing really well in the leadoff spot. And for him to lose ten days, I mean that's that, that's huge for this ball club right now. And Xander Bogarts too. So I, I think it it does become a and, and and by the way, Kike is vaccinated. Like he's he's come out publicly and said he's he's vaccinated. Yeah, I mean that doesn't surprise uh, me because his wife is pregnant, right? I, well, I didn't know that. She, she that's, that's that's or she had a she recently either she's pregnant or she recently had a child. I know that yeah. that was something that happened. Kid, judge, yeah. just based on his Instagram, but like he, I remember when they. Uh, first got the Pfizer shot. They got the the um, the shots like back in April when they was first um, there. I think it was him and a couple others, uh, and Christian Vasquez and, and and a few other guys. So, I, I so he so he is vaccinated. But I just think that the the point of um, yeah, they they have not reached eighty five percent threshold, and I think that's sort of become this um, 
the idea of vaccinations is definitely going to be a com- competitive advantage, I think, going forward. And that's what Cora talked about in the beginning of the year, too. Looking in retrospect, and, and obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's you know it's now September second, and you know seeing what the NBA has done and and what the NFL is doing and, and things like that, um, you know I know when spring training started, obviously the shots were just becoming available, and many players were not even eligible to get shots yet. Um, but now that we are where we are, um, and and the shots are universally available, and you also have you know one that's FDA approved. Should baseball go to that kind of model and say, "Look, no vax, no play"? I, I think I think I think baseball is a, a little bit different than those other sports. I mean, I think obviously you have you have you've had you know like you have Bob Boone right, who's just saying, "I'm not I'm not getting it. I'm gone. Like I don't care." And I think baseball is is sort of is sort of in its. Um, and it's more so their what their value systems. It's a stubborn sport, right? I think mm-hmm. for it to to be malleable in anything is is, is difficult. Um, the ability for it to not follow its own set of rules, and you know, and and you know, sort of the the this this there's this 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 formulaic like this formulaic uh, I guess stubbornness in the sport itself, and that does that goes beyond just you know vaccinations. It goes you know it. it goes into you know letting you know kids i mean the let the kids play thing i think that's something that's obviously you know caught on a little bit but like sports have been doing this for other sports have been doing this for like you know decades and decades of expressing themselves and baseball is just now uh, reaching that point with this generation that sort of tells you where the sport is or where it's been and i think when it comes to to, to this vaccine right like yeah it's it's new like it's it's something that that just came around in in January, February, whenever it came around. COVID is is still new. Like we're still figuring out what a Delta variant is. I, I didn't even know what it. I, to be honest, like I didn't even know what the CDC was before all this <laughs> happened. Like I was like, what does that stand for? And um, but now like I can, you know, it's 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 a regular part of my life. But like, it's still really really new. Um, and so for for us to be like for for the sports is to expect, and I think they should or at least try. Um, but for the sport to expect everybody to be on board with it, I think uh, knowing how the how the the culture of baseball is and how they respond to something new, I think that's a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're t- when you, on this story alone, like obviously, um, you you've spent the last five days or so breathlessly tweeting endless transactions by the Red Sox, um, but in terms of just kind of covering the story. Um, is there a part of you as, as a journalist, is there a part of you that says, wow, this is a fascinating story. And is there a part of you that just says, Oh God damn it. I just want to, I wish I could just write about baseball here. Yeah. There's definitely a part of me that wishes, um, <laughs> it was about baseball. I, I think that's, that's what we come here for. I think that's what, um, you know, we sort of, uh, um, that's, that's what I, that's what I'm, that's what I'm here for. But within that though, I think there's, also, you have, you cover the industry at large, right? You're covering, you know, you know essentially a, a company or a corporation, you know, or a franchise, an enterprise, whatever you want to call it. So this is what's, you know, at the fulcrum of their issues right now. So that, you know, as a journalist, um, it needs to be covered. Uh, you know, it's it's something that is is that that the world is dealing with, and and I think that 
obviously sports has a world has a way to trickle over into the world because we're we're still dealing with people and i think um you still have a responsibility to, to, to cover the industry but i would totally love to just cover um <laughs> a baseball game and, and see how and just and just look at how great wander franco is and not have my head down at typing out different you know this player was a close contact this player has covid and, you know this player entered quarantine and won't be able to get out for 10 days like you feel like you're missing a, a really pivotal series, especially for the Red Sox. I mean, to be honest, like Chris Sale pitched last night, and I had no idea he had only, he had only three strikeouts. And it's only and it's because I missed a lot of the game because I'm just having to be so immersed in whatever else is going on that I'm I'm, I'm missing things, you know. Right. So, um, you, you want to be able to cover baseball, but then I, obviously you you um, you get to you get to a point where you say, okay, this is the industry, you know. It's not the Mets where I have to cover you know, every little <laughs> detail. I, I was I was gonna say it could be worse. You could be schlepping up to a courthouse in White Plains right now. Exactly, exactly. Like there's never a dull moment with the Mets. Like it's like you cover <laughs> everything but the Mets. <laughs> um, so let's talk about baseball then for a second. Um, you know the, the Red Sox obviously had a rough 2020. They were not a disaster team, but I don't think anyone expected them to kind of compete for the division title. Um, and they got off to, like you said, a great start. They played great through early July. Um, do you feel like even internally, this team's performance in the first half surprised them? I th- I, I I think so. I I, I think that they'll say, and it it got it got a little bit tired toward the. Uh, toward like the middle part of the season where they're like, yeah, you know, everybody believed in us, but you guys like they, Oh God. Yeah. Like the, it's just like that. And then you need an enemy. Yeah. And then I think Cora got to a point where it was like, like, like the, like the players bought into it too much. And so he's like, okay. Like, and I think he came out one day and was like, you know, this is the Boston Red Sox. And like, you know, nobody's cares about us being an underdog. Like this. So like, we kind of have to cool out with that. And like so, it kind of stopped after that. But I remember like Kike and and everybody, everybody was like, "Yeah, you know, well, we knew what we were." It's like, no, you didn't. Like it's like you, you like your your starting staff to like in the in the beginning part part of the season overperformed. Um, you got you know sort of there are a couple games here and there where, or a lot of them were there there those comeback wins, and you know I and I think what they've they've realized down the stretch is particularly when they had all their guys is like, yeah, you can't keep winning games like that. Cause eventually those run out and, and the sample size gets larger and, you know, and here you are a team like the, like the Red Sox that, you know, go on this, this, this rut. And then, and then you look up and you're two and a half games behind the Yankees for the second wild card spot. So I think, I think internally they, they were saying like, okay, this is, this is probably going, we're trying to be as competitive as possible. We're going to play, but I don't think anybody expected them to have, be the first team to 70 wins. I mean, that's, that's sort of, that's so, that's a little bit unprecedented um, in my, in my opinion. So, uh, but, but then again, I think core is a great manager. I think he, he does really well with like the X's and O's and, and sort of like the, the, the people sure. part of it. Um, um, I, I think that that's played a, a significant, significant role. I think, you know, Rafi Devers having the season he's having again, I think core has played a large part in that. And, you know, so, I think that 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 it's 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 a mixture of both. But I think having Cora in the dugout certainly helps. But I didn't expect them, and I don't think they expected to have seventy wins by 
you know, be the first team 70 wins and be in first place in the AL East at the, at the all-star break. Let's talk about Alex Cora for a second. Obviously he sat out last year um, for reasons we all know. And is that even a shadow at this point or, or, or is that just kind of just completely not even in the rear view mirror anymore? Just a complete non-story at this point. Cause he's there and he's the manager of the Red Sox. And they're playing well. Yeah. I think, I think that it's, it's sort of in the past really, uh, to be honest, I think it's, he, he's talked about it so much, right. And, mm-hmm. and he's talked about it to a point where it, it's sort of, he's like disarmed, I guess the, disarmed i mean he he has a media background right like he worked at espn like so he knows how to work that angle in a sense of like talking about it owning it like he he's brought it up by himself you know a few times like it's like we didn't even ask about that yeah you know i the thing that i did in 2017 like you know and then sitting out last year and he's been very very open about it so you kind of like lose the the urge to even ask about it so it's 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 really really um in 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 the in sort of the rear view of um of, of, of everything that we're talking, everything that we're covering right now. I mean, shoot, we're covering so much with this team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think anybody's really thinking about that Astros uh, thing, but in the beginning of the year, it was certainly certain. It was, it was definitely a thing. And I think when the Astros came to town, it was a, it was a thing. And, and, and I remember um, a player asked him about, uh, oh, oh no, somebody asked him about uh, Alex Bregman. And he said, he's a good player. And then he just left it at that. And we're just like, what's going on there? What's that relationship like? Mm. like so like you kind of, yeah. It, it, and that's on the record too. It's not like an off the record kind of like that was, that was like on a zoom call where somebody says, Hey, what do you think of Alex Bregman? He's like, he's a good player. And it's just like, he just left it at that. So um, the relationships between him and some of those guys, I think is a little bit um, interesting. Some of the Astros guys, um, but and and when when the Astros do come to town, that's something that I do look for in terms of like, does he interact with them? Does he, you know, and, you know, Bregman, obviously, there is really no interactions between uh, those two the last time I saw. So like that's that's something I kind of look for. But other than like the, the whole cheating scandal thing and, and, you know, the trash can banging, I think that's sort of a little bit more so on, on, in people's rearview mirrors, at least from a media perspective. So uh, as we as we talk here, it's Thursday afternoon. Um, we begin the day with Boston in a wild card spot. They're two games ahead of Oakland, three and a half ahead of Seattle, four and a half ahead of Toronto. Um, in a perfect world, on September second, at what point is the roster look like the roster they want it to look like because of the outbreak, and and is that enough time for them to hold on to this? I. I th- the the roster right now you're asking i'm sorry yeah like at what point are they kind of in a perfect world if everything goes well from this point forward at what point is this kind of the, the COVID outbreak over and they're they have the team that they want to have on the field oh okay so i think they could they could potentially have i mean kike back by saturday right and then um arroyo I, it might be a little bit longer um because he tested positive, I think. Well, he used first a close contact, then he tested positive, I think, on Sunday. Um, look, if if they can get through these stretch of games, right? So like tonight, like they can. It's been a, it's been a terrible road trip for them in terms of like outbreaks, but like if you look on paper, if they can somehow figure out a way to split and go back four and three, I believe, on this seven game road trip, and they have see Cleveland at home this weekend. Um, with Kike prop potentially coming back this you know this weekend and they're still 
regardless, they're still going to come out of this miraculously uh, still leading, you know, the, the, the AL wildcard for the, for the second AL second, second wildcard spot. And then somehow, right. So Oakland's cause they've lost cause Oakland lost to the Tigers on, on Wednesday night. So if they can just figure out a way to, to, to just get to the weekend, I think this gets them to a better place. However, you're still missing Xander Bogarts and uh, a core group of your, group of your relievers. So I think probably by September 10th, September 11th, that's probably around the time where they're looking to put potentially have everybody back at full strength, or you know, so they can, you know, get the ball rolling. But then again, they play the White Sox that weekend, so um, which is another big series, and you know they might be without Bogart. So I think everything right now is a moving target. Uh, I think, and that's the sort of the the um, the 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 foundation of like this this um, this whole thing is like the is ironically the instability of it, right? I think it's very very uh, um, unstable in terms of like the unknown and what the doctors say. You know, I got to talk to here. I got to talk to this person. Talk to that person. And it's 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 become that because I think you know in large part this 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 team like we talked about has not reached that eighty five percent threshold. So they have a lot a lot of different um, you know, barriers to, to overcome, um, in addition to them not being, uh, in addition to them catching the virus. Um, I, I do have one last question for you about this outbreak, which, um, I forgot to ask when we were talking about it, but, um, Eduardo Rodriguez got COVID last year and, and, and got COVID, um, was, was very ill, had a heart condition. Um, has anyone talked to him about what's going on here? And and has he had any sort of, of public response? Yeah, I, I it's it's funny. I spoke to him actually from a distance yesterday, um, and I asked him about how he's he's felt, and it's kind of the sort of the same answers everybody's given. It's unfortunate. And it's it's almost like PRs like really prepped him for like those mm. type of questions because they're all giving the exact same answers over and over. And even him like. I noticed he was very, very short when I started talking about like, you know, his, his illness and, and his like, does this, what does this, does this outbreak mean for you? And, and like, you know, what you've been through. And he was just like, you know, I just want everybody to be healthy. And like, that was sort of like the end of it where yeah. he, he sort of just like cut it off. And I was like, Oh, you know, and I, that's when I was like, okay, thanks. Like, I don't have anything else. Like the first question I asked was like, you know, a straightforward question. He's like asking, oh, it's, it's unfortunate it happened to Xander, but we have to have this next man up mentality. We have to figure out a way to win. And then I, then I brought in the personal aspect of it. And he sort of like gave like that short answer was like, I don't want to really talk about this. Right. So I, I do think that's really interesting and fascinating though, is the fact that like here you have a team that's, you know, under, under the 85% threshold and you literally had a guy that's, and I don't know if he's vaccinated or not, you know, couldn't be, I, he should be, but like, I, if, 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 I, if, I, if I had a heart issues from it, but I, you know, I, I don't know what his status is, but for, for just to, to, to fathom, like, oh my gosh, like there, here's like, I'm face, I'm literally facing something that, you know, that I wasn't, I couldn't walk for three months. I think it was right. something like that. Like I had to, you know, I, I was, I was just, I think he was clear to walk, like, you know, few months after or like some months after he got it and it's like whoa like walk and like you're talking about a like a professional baseball player that's 
um, you know, it's he's, he, that's that's you know at at the peak of his ability and is it is in his in his prime, like twenty seven years old. Like you don't think about that type of stuff. So so for him to be facing it every day and, and like be around it and it's like sort of this like this silent virus just just creeping around their their, their clubhouse. For me, that would be that would be daunting if I were in his position. Well, Julian, I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, thanks for all the insight on what's going on with the Red Sox right now. And I'm sorry that you can't talk more about baseball. If, if you want to uh, read Julian's stuff, you uh, head to the Boston Globe. If you want to follow Julian on Twitter, he is at by Julian Mac M A C K at the end. Uh, anything else to plug, Julian? No, I'm all good, man. My my wife wants me to uh, get on instagram more and post our pictures and i'm like eh, instagram's not me so i <laughs> she, she would probably want me to plug the instagram but no i'm not doing it. are we going to see him on twitter at least yeah i'll put him on twitter she's like but i don't have twitter and i'm like i well, i don't use instagram so i don't know what to tell you well if you know what twitter is really good for it it's just so people can see you know can see babies and make nice comments about them because everyone on twitter is just so positive and friendly about pretty much every especially I imagine your replies right now are just a really happy, just positive place to be. I had I had Lenny Dykstra uh, oh, no. tweet me yesterday. Oh, that's, there's, there's no way that ends well. Wait, let's hear this. What happened? I said, uh, I said, uh, you know, High and Bloom is speaking with us at 4 p.m. This team is, this team, it's been a, it's been a COVID bloodbath for this team. And then Lenny Dykstra re- replies and says, "But was any of them sick?" <laughs> I'm like. Oh, gosh. How do I even respond to this? Well, I don't know if you know, but Lenny Dykstra's actually spent the last year getting a PhD in virology and immunology, so I think you got to listen to him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would... Um, As have millions on Twitter. <laughs> so, but yeah, so uh, that was that was, that was was a highlight when I, I was in my Uber yesterday. I was like, oh, Lenny Dykstra? What, what, the, what the heck is he doing? Ah! <gasps> Well, Julian, thanks for coming on. Follow Julian on Twitter. Bye, Julian Mack, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on soon if the Red Sox make the playoffs. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it.
podcast. Thanks again to Julie McWilliams for joining us from St. Petersburg. Our musical guest this week is Helen Money. Helen Money stands as one of the most unique and versatile cellists. It's a cellist working today. Um, composer Allison Chesley uses the instrument to access and channel the extremities of human emotion, employing extensive sonic manipulation and an array of plucking and bowing techniques to summon an astonishing breadth and depth of sound. Um, she used to be one half of Verbo for you old 80s, 90s, alt underground kitties. Um, big collaborator, uh, equally at home in both new music and metal circles. Uh, past albums saw her collaborate with Jason Roeder from Sleep in Neurosis and Rachel Grimes. Uh, she has toured with Russian Circles, Earth, Mono, Bob Mould, and Friends of the Podcast, Shellac. The, you're listening to tracks off of her latest album, Atomic, which is on Thrill Jockey Records, a very cool label. Um, and you can learn more about Helen and find all of her music at helenmoney.bandcamp.com. And thanks to Allison for getting in touch and providing us with music for this week's podcast. Very cool stuff. I would say this is probably the first baseball podcast to mention sleep and earth on it, but, um, uh, I'm sure Brisby has done it somewhere on some giant <laughs> it's, podcast. It's possible. I try. we try to, we try yeah, to you, win the, we try to win you, the music contest here. You and, you and Grant have just got to get together to make a stoner metal baseball podcast. <laughs> <laughs> where you only you just only ever talk about dope smoker and <laughs> we don't even talk about baseball no this right. is just, yeah because that's a perfect stoner metal podcast right it's like right. You just say you're gonna talk about one thing and then it's just drones on and on and on about yeah. one particular thing and you're like you're listening you're like i don't know if i like this but it kind of yeah. rules they just spent 100 minutes talking about the first two caius albums wow i mean i also i do have to say this is the venn diagram overlap of people listening to this podcast and people who have read our band could be your life multiple times <laughs> and Probably or been did. in it yeah and or yeah and or <laughs> was in one of those bands yeah when, when do you get henry rollins on to talk about the draft <laughs> i would generally like to i would love to know what henry rollins thinks about baseball if he watches it if he cares about it like i, I really would love no to know idea that. um i don't i've never had any sort of personal interactions with henry um okay. i've seen henry do spoken word stuff um but no i've never actually not on my list of people i've met I saw him intro Dinosaur Jr. for a show at Terminal 5 years ago, mm. uh, at least like 10 years ago. For, I think they were playing uh, one of their albums in full, and he was just there talking about it. The thing I found the funniest was that even when he's sitting down, like, you know, this is, this is like 50-something Henry Rollins, sitting down, like, you know, normal, or normal as Henry can get, uh, you know, doing an interview with the very soft-spoken men of, of Dinosaur Jr., he still had the, the microphone cord wrapped around his hand. I, I just think that that's it's that's just like, a that's great. It's just an unconscious thing for him, I think, at this point, just to have that. Henry Rollins, Dylan's a big Henry Rollins fan. Dylan Higgins, who does all of our um, multimedia stuff. Yeah, well now, well now, what you got to do is see if you can get Meg or Ben to talk about Big Black on on Effectively Wild. <laughs> we'll see if that happens one day. Um, it's time for emails. Ready for emails? I'm ready for emails. Our first email comes from Ian. Ian is a frequent emailer and frequent has his, has his friend Rob edit his emails to us. How do you feel about that? He's an email editor. Answer? He has email a friend named Rob who edits the emails he sends in. I I can get behind that. So many people send emails where it's really clear that they stopped trying like a third of the way through and they were just like, whatever. Like I, I like read my emails like four times over before I send them. I change words because I don't like repeating words within an email. Wow. On the other hand, I'm also kind of just messed up in the head, so that probably explains that. 
I li- yeah. I literally notice typos in emails as I as I type them, and I just go on and hit send. Yeah, it's. I, 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 I mean, care. that's the thing. People are like, people accept typos in emails. I'm just the kind of like anal retentive weirdo who sees a typo and it just like starts to like make my eye twitch. I went to the I went to the MoMA a couple or a few days ago, and I for the for a second, I thought a painting. I can't remember which one, but I thought it was slightly like tilted. And I, it wasn't, it was just the, the way the painting was done. It wasn't the frame. It wasn't uh, uneven on the wall. I literally had to walk away from it because it was giving me like anxiety. <laughs> In case you're wondering why I'm an editor, this, this is, this is part of it. <laughs> you and I live very different lives. Yes. Uh, Ian writes, hi, KG. Is there a point where an MLB lineup is strong enough all the way through where it would behoove a team to intentionally intersperse their very best hitters throughout said lineup, as opposed to the traditional get the best guys the most at bats front to back lineup. In other words, when your weakest links aren't all that weak, could booing the lineup all the way through the order with your tentpole hitters be more effective than lumping them somewhere one to five in the order? I hesitate to give a specific example because there may be other factors at play in any single situation. I don't want to take away from the concept in general, but the Astros lineup currently makes me think about this. For example, Kyle Tucker continues to be one of the better couple hitters in the lineup by most measures, and he isn't the worst by any, but he's firmly entrenched in the bottom third. Um, there's a lot of factors here. I have had this discussion, um, and I've been a part of this discussion in a front office about having three sets of three in your lineup. Um, so you kind of have a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, if you will. Um it's weird because obviously after the first inning, your lineup order kind of goes away in a lot of ways. Yeah, that, um, that's that's kind of what I always felt about lineup construction, that really because of the fact that every inning break fundamentally changes it, that the only thing that matters is you just put your best hitters near the top because that, mm-hmm. mean, that means they get the most plate appearances, which, yeah, I, I'd, I'd actually kind of wonder if there was going to be kind of an inter, more interspersing or actually less because of the three batter minimum rule that managers were no longer going to feel... Right. concerned about at least having two maybe two lefties in a row or, stacks, or putting right. three lefties with a with a righty kind of just sitting in the middle um, which i guess was already kind of a thing but certainly yeah you know is, it seems more usable now but it's funny that the astros line i get mentioned the one i think of is the dodgers lineup right especially the one we saw last year where it just seemed like there was literally no except for the pitcher and, and there wasn't a pitcher last year even uh that there was just nowhere to hide but i think that's more a result of just you know I it, the Dodgers just have so many good hitters that it almost doesn't matter where they go in the lineup at a certain right. Point. And the the best teams and 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 you'll the best teams have no dead innings and and yeah. you know you see the bad teams and you see you know and you're watching the game and you see who's coming up seven eight nine you go oh we can go check the laundry this you know right now yeah and um like the best teams have no dead innings but like I think specifically about Tucker you're also talking about some um some soft factors which is kind of a you know, a bit of a, a respect and team morale and individual player morale. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kyle Tucker came up young and he was on a team loaded with stars. Kyle Tucker does deserve to hit higher in the lineup in terms of pure production and talent. Um, but you just don't, there's, you, it doesn't, lineups don't make a huge difference in runs, but you also just don't want to have that conversation. And nor should you. It, it, I think this is a totally defendable thing. I, it might upset, like, not purists, but people who just think about players as strat cards, but like, you don't want to have that conversation and to tell Yuli he's moving down or to tell no. Correa or like, and, and North yeah, these, these guys have, they have, they, they have, care. Uh, they have feelings and they have pride and they right. have, and all these things matter. And I, it's, it's curious too, because I know just from, from my years of being a Red Sox fan, I remember, you know, Bill Miller way back in the day, one yeah. of the, one of the better hitters of his era, underrated hitter, batting title one year. Hitter. Yes. 
But he, I remember in that 2003, for the 2003, and I think also for the 2004 Red Sox, he spent a lot of time batting very low in the order, 7th or 8th usually. Yeah, 6th, 7th, yeah. And I remember fans at the time being angry with first Grady Little, and I I, mean, again, I don't remember how much it was the case in 04, but I, I think, I mean, Terry Francona had plenty of, of stuff going on in 2004 beyond Bill Miller, but I remember, you know, there being this question constantly of why is Bill Miller hitting so low in the lineup, especially when you have guys like Todd Walker hitting second or, or whatever it was. And I think Miller himself said, I like hitting in the bottom of the lineup. I like being down here. I like that there's no pressure. I like that I'm basically a second leadoff guy. And I know that that's something else teams have kind of, if not adopted, that there is that mindset of like, we like having a, a high OBP guy down there. Right. So that when the lineup the turns top. over, you have a, you more often than not have a guy on base already. But yeah. I think there's always the personal preference. too. I'm sure if you ask the Astros as a whole, you know, if you ask each Astro design the best lineup you possibly can, you'd probably get a different lineup from everybody. But I also imagine that for the, if you ask them for the most part, I'd be like, no, it doesn't really matter. It only matters insofar as you said, like, I, there's the pride of I'm a, I'm a cleanup hitter. I, pres- I regard myself as a cleanup hitter or as a leadoff hitter or whatever. That's where I want to be. But otherwise, I imagine it's, you know, I probably, they, they probably say to themselves, no, it doesn't really matter where any of us hit because we're all really good. Yeah, I mean, you know? it, it matters to some people a, a lot, like even, um, even more. Than it should sometimes. You know, I, it's no coincidence that the the Blue Jays' hot streak took off when George Springer was a healthy, but also put in the leadoff. Spot. In the leadoff, yeah. And he and loves hitting leadoff. And I remember talking, you know, to, to, to AJ Hinch about like it's just weird that he hits leadoff. He's you know he's a three four hitter, and he said George wants to hit leadoff, and so that's yeah. And, that's, and in the same vein, I know there are guys. I think uh, I, I saw it. I don't know if it's the case because I don't think anyone's asked him about it. But I noticed that when. The Padres moved Tommy Pham to the leadoff spot about uh, three or four. I think it was. I think it largely while while Tatis was out, but um, mm-hmm. they he just did not hit up there. And I I do know that I do think there are hitters who just don't like being leadoff hitters. They don't like being cleanup hitters. They don't like being, you know, they have a spot where they like being, and that's what matters to them. You know, yeah. like you said, George Springer wants to be a leadoff hitter. So you write a lineup, put him in. Yeah, you know, maybe is there is there a more optimal lineup where he hits fourth or fifth or whatever? Maybe. But he wants to be up there, and he's really good up there. So, why screw with it? Yeah, it's 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 it, it, an interesting concept, and I, I the one two three thing I think might work if you do have a Dodger style lineup. But uh, it, it's just there's too many factors around that. Yeah, and and then the other side of it is like if you're the Red Sox, for example, and you have four maybe five hitters you really feel comfortable with, and then a bunch of guys where you're just kind of praying they make contact. What is it? How does it really benefit you to take JD Martinez moving from fourth to seventh? Yeah, you know, yeah, it makes it makes that part of the order a little harder to get through, but at the expense of now you're hitting like Marwin Gonzalez or Bobby Dahlbeck fourth. You know, it's yeah, and it's interesting. Like I can't, I know this would take someone other than you and I to do the math here, but like if you have something that's like what that, Dan's for, right? If you have something like that, does it make sense to to bunch them or spread them out and like have like a, you know an 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 easier out every inning or just kind of kill an inning? Yeah, and I think most teams would probably just say, eh, you know what, just kill an inning. Yeah. You know, because we'd rather have our guys bunched up so that when you do have, and I mean, obviously this is all obviously obvious basic stuff, but like when you do have uh, Xander Bogarts getting on base, well, guess what? There's Rafael Devers and J.D. Martinez right yeah. behind him. Goes Certainly, I, I wonder if the math changes as far as chance to score as opposed to chance to put up a crooked number. Yeah, but I, I think you that know? would be more the case if MLB managers like NBA coaches and NFL coaches had the ability to reorganize their personnel depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just the, the static nature of the lineup and just the fact that you can't you can't move guys around just means, well, or at least within a game is, you know, you just kind of have to live with that. And, you know, you just have to live with dead innings sometimes, I think. For sure. Um, the next email comes from Kyle. And Kyle says, my question is about the trends in access to baseball among amateur players. 
Hmm. It's, it's been well known that baseball has become a rich kid sport with the rise of travel ball teams and showcases effectively pricing out anyone who doesn't have the money to afford all of the costs associated with travel baseball and a parent to accompany them to each tournament. Companies like Perfect Game dominate the amateur circuit while charging hundreds of dollars per showcase or tournament. My question is the existence of large, expensive companies like Perfect Game and Prep Baseball Report inevitable in the current system. Say hypothetically PG ceased to exist tomorrow, would someone else take their place or would high school athletes be able to be discovered by college programs and pro teams via more accessible means like the Urban Youth Academies or their high school teams? Also, do you think orgs like PG have an ethical responsibility in the current system to work towards equality and accessibility in their events? Um, yes, they do, and they don't necessarily fill that. Um, yeah, they don't even come close. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I mean, places like Perfect Game and Prep Baseball Report definitely make the world of amateur scouting easier and and. I think more importantly, the team's more accurate in the sense that the, it provides you with the most valuable look at a player. It's 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 not always easy to go, um, and I, I think specifically about the Midwest at times because it's not like you're going to see baseball in Miami where the quality of play is unbelievable, um, or Texas or Southern California, which is it's just phenomenal level of high school baseball. Like you go see some you know hot player in the Midwest, and like you go see, he goes three for four with a double and two bombs. You're like, well, okay, but you know, kids throwing 71, um, you know, and I don't know what I learned. And I, you always try to, you know, wonder to yourself. And I, I did it all the time. Like, man, what does this kid look like if I drop him in San Diego? You know what I mean? Or, or against a better lineup. Yeah. Or anything like that. It's just like, what happens if this kid suddenly in like Miami, I remember seeing Archbishop McCarthy, I think, um, one year and they played American heritage, two of the best high school programs in the nation. Like American heritage mm-hmm. had Tristan Casas, uh, hitting third, uh, Corey Acton went to Florida, hit second. Their leadoff man was a freshman named Enrique Bradfield, who had a phenomenal year at Vanderbilt this spring. Um, and Bishop McCarthy had Joe Perez, who the Astros drafted. Um, I can't remember his name. He had a ton of home runs at Miami. Um, Mark Vientos, who's now a Mets prospect. And I just remember, it was a really good game between two of the best programs. It, I was sitting next to a guy who who knows these programs very well, like this the South Florida area scout. And it was like four to two, and in came a reliever, and he goes, "Yeah, this is their sixth inning guy." First of all, it's a high school team with a yeah, sixth that's, inning that's guy. Just, that's mind blowing. Here's the, and then, but here's the thing: like this is just their sixth inning guy, right? This is a, this is a setup reliever on a high school team, right? Yeah, he's going to Richmond next year. Hmm. Their sixth inning reliever is going to a four year school. Yeah. Like, that's the quality you're talking about. But to get back to your question, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if Perfect Game went away, someone else would totally come fill the void because the money's unbelievable. Um, and not the, just that, but also because the only other, I think, organization that could do it is Major League Baseball, and they cannot, they simply don't have the the bandwidth or the, I, I imagine they don't even really have the interest in trying to manage that world. I don't think they do. Yeah, I think they're happy to let that world kind of manage itself. And I, I, uh, do, I do wish Major League Baseball would, it would be obviously extremely difficult. I do wish Major League Baseball had more of a say in those things, if only because, obviously, left to the owners of Perfect Game and all those other places where, you know, profit is a thing that matters, and so is the performance of the kids and, and you know, getting the, you know... Perfect Game has a lot of stuff that they care about beyond just the health, safety, and well-being of the kids who are playing and their development, as at least beyond a, you know... Can you throw a curveball right way? I wish there were some kind of governing body that could just be 
exist to look out for them because I really doubt that these places have the kids' best interests in mind. Yeah, at least I mean, with regards to that stuff, or at least I, maybe I not say, in mind, but it's it's not it's not the primary concern. It's not, and I will say like like PBR does have some rules in place for like pitch counts and things like that. Yeah, um, at their events, and 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 those make sense. I mean, I will say that like the, it's still it's a lot harder and a lot more of a challenge, but there are plenty of kids who do make their name and exist outside those systems yeah um, but i mean i do think that it, is but it's that, not it's not an even playing field but there are no not not it. remotely and like for as much as mlb has the urban youth academy and, and stuff like that to try to level that playing field it's, it's not because baseball is just an expensive sport you know and it's an expensive sport that has a ton of equipment that requires a giant field that requires a really specialized ability to do stuff you know pitching and hitting are very 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 difficult skills that are i assume i I would actually love to see a study on this if it's harder to learn how to throw or hit a baseball properly than it is to shoot a basketball or throw a football. I imagine it's way harder. Um, and certainly they're way more moving yeah. parts and all that fun stuff. So, yeah, it's – I mean, like, you're right. Like, get rid of perfect game and a new perfect game will, will immediately pop into its place. Like you said, there's too much money in it, and it, it, it does fill a need. It's – just for me, it's just something where it's like – it it does. It just, is kind of gross. No, it I is. It's it. it's really gross, and it exacerbates. I think that issue with, you know, because I think if there's a there, there's a there's a widely held and I, and I think correct belief that you get a kid into baseball playing baseball, they will love the sport pretty much forever. That is the gateway. Mm-hmm. Um, in is like if beyond simply just watching the sport or you know whatever you, whatever attachment you had through your family or your friends or whatever. Um, and I think that what worries me about stuff like Perfect Game is because it creates such a high kind of barrier to entry to get to that point where you can be someone who plays beyond t-ball or beyond uh, elementary school or beyond whatever simple like kids, like beyond Little League, let's say. And even Little League is probably something where the kids are just hyper talented at this point. Mm-hmm. But if you want to play beyond that, you really can't unless you are a good enough to be a Perfect Game uh what do they call their kids? Just kids. Yeah, whatever whatever weird term they have. Or you can afford it. And a lot of kids can't afford it. And a lot of that too is is the travel ball circuit and the and the the equivalent of the AAU teams and the all and the you know the interstate inter the, the national all every every baseball player I feel like I've talked to when I asked them about what their life as a youth was like playing baseball, they'd all they'd all the younger ones at least now, the guys who are in uh, 35 and under. I guess that is all baseball players at this point. Yeah, exactly. But especially the younger guys would say, no, by the time I was 10, I was on a travel ball circuit or I was on a, an all-star team or I was flying from state to state to state because every coach wanted a piece of me because they all knew I was the or you know I was the best player in wherever. And right. granted, like those are the guys who are the best players in wherever. But yeah, that even then, but like you talk to the parents, too, it's like, yeah, it was a lot of work and it was a lot of money. And that's for people who want to afford it and who can afford it. It's know, not, yeah, I have, most, I have a most friend whose whose son is is on track. Son plays baseball and loves baseball and is good at baseball. He's not going to have a pro career, and they know that. Um, he's probably going to play after high school, but it's going to be you know like a, a, a D school, T two school, or a smaller college. Yeah, he's not a, he's not a star, but he's good enough to, to play after high school, which is right. quite an accomplishment in itself. Um, and he plays travel ball, and it's not you know he is not on one of these massive pro level travel ball teams that have first round picks he's just on a travel ball team in illinois mm-hmm. um and it's like it's also like the b team like this 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 program runs two travel ball teams and there's like an a team and a b team he's on the b team it's like four grand yeah it's absurd 
It's, it, it is an absurd amount of money. And so much of that is just travel and lodging. And then, of course, you have to factor in, oh, my kid wants to be serious at this. I got to get him a coach. Mm. I got to get him training. I got to get him, you know, the right physical training. Like it, it becomes a whole thing because of the way that that the sport has gone from. And it's funny because, you know, you consider the beginnings of baseball. They were just teams of, of factory workers or, or or coal miners or whoever yeah. just happened to be just came together. And like, let's just play some based ball or whatever it was called back then. Mm-hmm. Rounders, some right. seven sack, balls is a lot. Sack slapping. I don't know. But and now it's something where it's like if you want it, if you want your kid to be a professional baseball player, if your kid wants to be a professional baseball player, even even just a good college player that starts at like age nine and it costs a ton of money and it takes a shit ton of work and it, it just sucks because there are plenty of kids who would, I'm sure would love to keep playing, even if they're not the best there at the sport, right. who just even before the talent level cuts them down, it's the mo- it's the money and the access that get rid of them first. And to me, that's to kind of wrap up to the point I started a million years ago is I think really harmful for major league baseball's future because those kids are going to drift away from the sport. You know, you don't, you don't just want the kids who are all into baseball and who played all the way through college and, you know, had those dreams, but had to give up on them. You want the kids who stopped playing and like, I I didn't play baseball past T-ball, but I still love the sport and I still care about it deeply, you know, but it's, it's hard to keep those kids around. If you're basically saying to them from the age of eight, you can't play anymore. Yeah, you're excluded from a system. Yeah, like, or not even you can't play anymore. You can't play with the, like, you can't play with your friends. You can't play with other good kids. You can't play, you know, you have to go play in this other, smaller, less less successful, less accessible league with worse equipment and worse players because you just can't afford to be better. Yeah, that's America in a nutshell, though. I feel like I'm doing a radio program right now. I don't want to be doing that. <laughs> I got all these, like, quip-ready, like, these soundbite-ready quips where I'm just, like, I feel like I'm about to throw it to a traffic guy or something. <laughs> do we want to do weather on the eights or something? I don't know. It's it's very sunny here now, here in New York City. Seventy eight degrees here in the Here on ten ten winds. Sign of the times. It's three oh five p.m. Sports coming up in ten minutes. You're on WFAN. Let's take a call now from who's the next email from? <laughs> next email is from Ricky. Ricky says you mentioned somewhere that in-game tactics encompass something like two percent of a manager's impact. I can buy this, but it has me curious about a few things. How, if at all, can fans evaluate their favorite team's manager? I, I, just real quick, big props to using a you in favorite like you're British. Maybe you are. Mm. Must we simply accept that we'll never know if a manager is good at their job? As well, what is the spread in talent between the 30 big league managers? I believe that the worst big league manager is far ahead of me as the worst big leaguer. But I'm less sure of manager number 15 and potential manager number 60. Much to think about your pal, Ricky. Um, I, here's the bad news, Ricky. I don't think fans can evaluate their favorite team's manager. No, it's impossible. Period. Um, a manager's job, and I've said this a million times, or primary job, is is to get the best performances out of his players. And I think it's hard to know how much of an impact he is when a player is good or bad because there are also other factors, um, including uh, physical health, mental health, which we've talked about at times. Um, you know, I've mentioned this. Okay, there, I mean, there's a guy, famous guy, you go look at his BRF page, and, and it's like, man, look at that. All-star, 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 MVP, all-star, all-star. Shit year. Ooh. All-star, all-star, MVP. Yeah. And that shit year, like, he was perfectly healthy. He was also going through the nastiest of nasty divorces. Um, and so there's always external factors, too. But that's, like, a, a manager's job is to get the best possible performances out of, out of his players. And some of that strategy and some, like, the lineup stuff we talked about, using your relievers in the right way, um, things like that. 
and and I think that's stuff you can't really see as a from the outside. It's just no, I'm, you, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry you just can't. You can. You need, to, and even if you're a reporter, I think it's still really hard to see because you can talk to the manager every single day, and you do. But all that's really going to give you a sense of is how does this person relate to other people one on one or in a group setting? Because they're never going to tell you anything beyond what they are basically allowed by either the team or what they allow themselves to tell you. Um, and I, I think it's right. Like tactically, at this point, when you have lineups and roster decisions that are dictated by front offices instead of managers like back in the day and when you have not just that but like for the good team like most of the decisions are either out of your hands in the sense that well you're not gonna you know i'm not gonna pinch it for mookie bets unless i absolutely have to or it's something where there's already a set uh what's the word i'm looking for Uh, basically like i know a lot of people made fun of joe girardi and his binder Full of uh, most teams have some decisions. kind of matrix, yeah. But that's the thing; like every team has it. Every team has something that's, or at least every, I, I think every team. I'd like to think every team by this point has something that tells you: a, in X situation, you have Y, Z, and well, I ran out of letters options. And you know, the, the, ultimately, the choice is the managers as to whether or not they want to do that. But I think every manager also understands in the back of their mind: if I do this and it goes wrong, and I had another option in front of me that was given to me by the team. I'm not going to have this job very much longer, am I? Right. And you know, um, managers don't really get that. And I think there are probably a select few who do just because that's their personality, guys like Joe Madden. But they don't really have that kind of it, it's, it's certainly very, very different from what it was even even 30 years ago, much less the days of like, you know, Earl Weaver, or Casey Stengel or, or, you know, the the guys who ran not just the lineup and the roster, but the whole damn franchise. And there's good man. Like, I, you know, I. I I know Colorado as an organization's a, you know, tr- garbage fire. It's a train but, wreck. It's a train but wreck. I, but I think Bud Black's a really good manager. You know, yeah, and, you know, and you get into these kind of weird situations as well. Yeah, but like, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. I, I don't think any fan can see because what what are you seeing the manager do even in the course of a game? The only things you ever see them do are uh, pinch hit someone, come out and get the pitcher. Or make a pitching change. That's literally all they do within the course of a game. And or maybe they're calling for steals from the bench or, you know, maybe they're responsible for some degree of outfield and infield positioning. Although it seems like that's more of a coach plus front office thing at this point that's just determined ahead of the fact. So, yeah, there's just nothing really to judge a manager on beyond how well do they get along with and motivate and work with the guys in the clubhouse. And honestly, no one sees that except for the folks within the team itself. Our next email comes from Ryan. Ryan says, do agents have scouts or scouting directors, or do they only care about players when they're going to the draft and once they make the big leagues? Does a player who shoots from a 30 on a prospect list, the top 10, have a chance to change agents to a top agent? Are they not interested yet? Do minor leaguers and prospects even have agents? Um, yes, they do. Um, for the most part, there are certainly some, you know, a lot of guys who are, you know, 25th round draft pick who don't get an agent until they might have a potential for a big league career. Um, the bigger agents in the world do have, I mean, Boris just has a scouting department. Boris has scouts at games. Um, but most of the bigger groups, so, you know, Boris, CAA, Excel, groups like that do have people who are doing player evaluation and recommending potential clients to them. Um, there is a story to be written if you could get people to talk about it, but it would be really hard about the world of agent switching. Um, it is a spectacularly ugly world. Um, <laughs> it happens all the time and it happens the most with prospects. And that's part of the ugliness is because, um, 
you know, and this is just, you know, pure capitalism. Like, like agents hook up with players early so they can get the, the, the late. You know, the, the, those players are not, you know, they're in the minors. They're not making any money. Um, and so the agent's not going to make any money until that player makes real money and is in the big leagues. And so, you know, they, you know, until then that player is an investment. The agent is spending more money and time than they are making from the player at a, at a huge level. And then that, you know, that balance flips completely on its, on its heels. Once the player gets to the big leagues, especially once the player gets three years in and starts making real money. Um, and even more so if you can get them to free agency. And so like these, some of these prospects change agents two, three times on their way up, um, often for reasons that are, um, let's just go with unethical. Yeah, um, I, I can't it, imagine there's it's really unbelievable. Any, I can't imagine there's any portion of the agent signing world that is operates under any guise of ethics or morals. Um, yeah, I mean, they're just they're, they're there to make money. And some of them do do a better job with their players and take care of their players better than others. And that's enough for a switch. And other times there are um, incentives to change agents. Here's my question, though, because since since a lot of major league teams, I know you, you mentioned at the very start that the Nationals had cut down their scouting department. Uh, since a lot, it seems like that's kind of a a trend in the sport. Is that scouts are more and more teams are are cutting down their scouting departments? Are those one? Do those scouts then just end up? You know, do they end up being poached by those agencies to go continue doing their work just for somebody else? And two, is that going to be the case for those agencies too? That they're also going to start relying less and less on on in person scouting. Um. Although I know, granted, they're, they're scouting different bodies, so to speak. Yeah, but, but it, yeah. It's, it is more the latter. Like, agents themselves have also made... Um, I know an agent right now who's looking for an analytics person to work for them, to help them to identify talent, and to help them with contract negotiations and things like that by understanding... Having a good understanding of the numbers that teams are using to, to form their offers and things like that. Um, and so... Um, yeah, the, the majority of scouts who end up not staying in baseball still stay in baseball, like, you know, working and like the, in the instruction world or go work for like PBR and perfect game and places like that. Um, but agents do have like talent evaluation people that are helping them recognize players to either sign or steal. Um, and it's a it's a weird place. It's a real weird world. Yeah, it it sounds like a it's 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 the cantina in Mos Eisley. It's just a wretched hive <laughs> of scum and villainy. <laughs> yeah, it's no different from the rest of the world. That's um, our final email comes from Patrick. Patrick says you've mentioned wearing a Wu Tang Clan T shirt on the podcast. Wu Tang is forever, and it's also for the children. Uh, that got me thinking. What are the best debut albums? Oof, the Wu Tang's enter. Really, that's really tough. The Wu Tang's enter the Wu Tang Thirty Six Chambers has to be in the discussion. I'd nominate the Cars debut album as well. Patrick, you're onto something. That's one of the more underrated albums of all time. Uh, I'm curious what you and the co-host think. Anything come to mind immediately for you, John? Uh, Nas's Elmatic, which is not just one of the greatest debut albums ever, but one of the greatest hip-hop albums ever, period. Um, like that one immediately just came to mind. Um, that is a really good question, though, because there is... Part of it is I just I forget sometimes whose debut albums are whose, and there's also been so much music in the last ten years of just keeping track of you know what what is new that came out. I'm just trying to think older stuff. Um, I mean, like the the Clash, the Clash comes to mind. Clash, yeah, Clash self titled is up there. B fifty two self titled is up there. Um, Naked Reagan's Basement screams. Um, Devo, are we not men? We are Devo. Is yeah, unbelievable. those are 
uh, Interpol's first album in that particular indie world. Strokes' yeah. first album too. The Strokes' first album is very good. The Strokes' first album is the best thing they ever made. Yes. It's funny that Rick Okasek came up, though, because I've been thinking about this. Like, Rick Okasek, I mean, the cars were great, but then he, he turned into, like, the go-to producer for a solid, like, what, 20-some yeah. years. Um, and I'm just jealous that the last generation gets him, but my generation gets Jack Antonoff just going on every record and making it sound bad. Oh, I didn't know this. This is what he does now? Well, he, is... yeah, he produced he produced the last, the most recent Lord album, the most recent St. Vincent album. Um, he produced the most recent Claro album, I believe. He, he has his hands in any... Any indie slash female-fronted semi-mainstream act of the last five years, he has basically been the producer for it, um, which is why they all have that same kind of... I mean, because he was, he was in fun and everything. And I personally just, just hate that band and their sound. I just find them great <laughs> beyond you. belief. Yeah, so you. this is also a me thing where it's like him bringing <laughs> that sound to artists I like, like St. Vincent, just very much frustrates me. Um, but yeah, it's, we need a, we need a Rick Okasek back again. You know, we do. Am I pronouncing that right? Okay. It's, it's Okasek. Okasek. Thank you. I, I, That's fine. The, the, the last names of Eastern European descent are a bit are of a weak, soup sometimes. Bit of, yeah. A bit of a weakness. Um, I'm trying to think what else comes up. The Smiths first album. There's um, a lot. There's a lot. I wish I could think of stuff that's. Surferosa by the Pixies. Yeah, I wish I could just think of stuff that's semi-recent, but just nothing is nothing is popping to mind right now. Can I ask how old a person you are? Uh, I'm 35. I'm 52, and at okay. some at some point you do. It's sad. Like I, my my wife, who's actually older than me, um, is much better at finding new music than I am. At some point, I just yeah, kind of locked in. It it does get. Hard. I I found you know I've I've you know I'm still trying to keep up with what is new and what is good. I listened to the new Halsey album, which was speaking of producing uh, or production was produced by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and is fantastic because those two are musical geniuses when they combine their forces and powers. But yeah, it just it just gets harder, and especially when there's more and more going on in your life, and and this uh, the scary this a scary portent of the future for anyone listening to this under the age of thirty. Uh, eventually your life will have things start happening in it that you can't ignore or can't drink away. <laughs> I disagree and, with the latter, but I understand. <laughs> and those are going to take away from things like being able to spend hours on end just like uh, either, you know, crate diving or, or, or reading a music blog. How do kids even get their music? Do they read music blogs still? No, there's no way. Okay. They, they get um, maybe yeah, I think well, they just get their recommended list on yeah. Spotify and go finding whatever it is the current equivalent of Gorilla versus Bear or Brooklyn Vegan is. Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm referencing a very narrow slice of <laughs> of especially like indie millennial existence. Indeed. Online. Um, Nine point yeah, two I mean, on Pitchfork. Yeah, the, I mean the the one that did immediately jump out to me that was that was that Nas album was Illmatic, especially because um, it came out I believe ninety four and and Enter the Wu Tang was ninety three. I mean you can make a pretty good argument that that like eighty eight to ninety six is probably like the greatest period in the history of rap, just because you look at the albums that came out then Enter the Wu Tang, Illmatic, a couple of Outcast albums, Ready to Die. But um, years obviously that's when rap millions. entered the fully entered the mainstream like. So yeah, that period alone, those that solid almost decade there probably provided a ton of great debuts just right there by itself. June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty eight, was the release date for "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back." There you go, perfect. So that's if you want to count that really as kind of the start of that particular era of hip hop, then yeah, it makes mm. sense that 
you know, you're you're going to get some all time debuts in there because you're going to get guys who came out of absolutely nowhere all of a sudden. Right. I mean, that was their second album, but I'm still counting it for the year. Yeah, yeah. And like, and yeah, that's that's what that's what Enter the Wu Tang was. It was eight dudes from Staten Island. Where you, I imagine the first time people, I mean, the first time I heard them was years after. Obviously, that album came out, but I imagine people hearing them at the time just sounded like literally nothing that it people really ever did. heard before. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, it, and that's kind of kind of hard to. Because for me, like, great debut isn't just, oh, I love this album. It's like, this changed something. It's what is this? Holy shit. Yeah, it's like it, it's that moment yeah. of, like, oh, my God. And yeah. I think for pretty much everyone, every hip-hop fan on Earth, I think Enter the Wu-Tang is way, way up there in that, oh, my God moment. Uh, that's it for emails. If you want to send us an email, please do so. We love reading your emails. Send your emails to chinmusic at fangrass.com, and they all end up right in my inbox. Someone sent an email. I didn't read on the air because it wasn't a great question, but they said, to whoever is reading this. I'm reading it. Yeah, I, what do you think? I have an assistant or something? <laughs> I'm reading it. Come on. Fangraphs is a membership site. We don't have that many people working for us. Really? They go right I to do, my inbox. You heard that my introduction. I'm an editor and I do social media. We don't. We can't afford an assistant. <laughs> it's time to catch up with John. That's you, John. Oh, hey. What are you up to? What am I up to? Uh, I'm a, you know, debating whether or not to buy uh, an inflatable raft for later, I guess. I mean, if you look out your window, it just looks like it rained a lot, right? You're not flooded. Where well, you here's are. the we funny thing. I look out my window now. And granted, I'm, I live in the 22nd floor of a high rise, so I'm way the hell up. But I look out my window, and it just, it's a beautiful, sunny day. It's apparently very nice outside. You look out, there's no, there are no trees on the ground, no branches. There's not that much. There are no, there's no standing water. It just You would not have guessed, based on the way things look right now, that we got hit with a giant-ass hurricane last night. With a historical but, storm, yeah. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's... Like everybody else in baseball, I'm just, you know, the month of September is all just about kind of taking that one last big deep breath before October. I know we talked about how, you know, there's not a terribly lot of compelling things, at least on a playoff race or team level happening in September. But obviously it's like, you know, this is the last month we get to see Shohei Otani before he gets put back in storage. You know, that's yeah. Fun. It's tough, tough to find stuff to write about, too. And like, it's yeah, just like eh, this one and maybe I'll find an interesting player. April, stuff. I'm, I'm really just kind of getting April ready for September, the playoffs. Wow. We'll be writing every day. Yeah, April and September are brutal months for writing about baseball. Mm-hmm. Just brutal. Just I remember both as a writer and as an editor just how difficult it was to find something where you felt not only comfortable with writing it because you felt like there was enough to say, but also that it was saying something new at that point. Right. I also have to you know? become more comfortable with saying I'm going to write 300 words about five things because there are so many things like I kind of start and I go, I don't have a thousand words about this. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's that's why Twitter exists, but... Uh, but yeah so for me it's just you know kind of i I am i will say what something is going for me i am going to pitchfork fest next weekend in chicago are you yes i'm very excited i've never i've never actually done a festival so this is that's a new one for me i'm i'm anti-festival but where where is pitchfork fest in chicago it's in uh union park okay so who are you most excited to see at pitchfork fest in chicago that's a good question uh i think it's, it feels like the lazy answer, but Phoebe Bridgers is, I think, is going to put on a fantastic show. Um, her her last album was very, very highly rated, and with good reason. I think it's fantastic. Um, Erica Badu is going to be at that is going to be performing, which I'm just really interested to see what an Erica Badu show looks like. I've never seen her live. I've heard she's a fantastic uh, performer, so I'm I'm really excited to see what that's like. Um, the uh, the 2009 version of me will certainly see Animal Collective and go, oh, hey, I remember you guys, and then move on. 
Um, and I think there's some smaller bands in there that I, I'm interested to see. Definitely Dogleg, Dead, uh, Armand Hammer, which is a very cool rap duo who I really like. Um, Barty Strange, also kind of in the same. Maxo Cream, fantastic rapper. Uh, Ty Siegel always puts on a really good live show. Uh, I've never seen either Waxahachie or Angel Olsen. I'm very interested to, to hear them because I think they're they're just both fantastic. Waxahachie was a musical guest on the previous version of this podcast. There you go. Um, I am. I didn't like the latest Saint Vincent album. She is she is the headliner on on uh, the middle date Saturday. I still like her a lot. The one though, I will say, there's one sun, Sunday to me. The the last day of the of the lineup is particularly just chaotic because of just the 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 folks that they've had lined up. Beyond Erica Badu, you've got Danny Brown, who is just a whirling dervish nonsense chaos monster when it comes to his music. And then the one I'm really super excited to see how it plays out because it could either be transcendent or a complete train wreck is Cat Power. Oh. Yeah, that's a hand grenade right there. And I'm really excited to see how it blows up. Um, I So last month, I want to say, I think it was last month, um, was Lollapalooza in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. And they did have a vaccine requirement. What are the rules for Pitchfork Fest? Pitchfork also has a vaccine requirement. Um, yes, you, are, you have to full have either a vaccine requirement or negative COVID-19 test results. Uh, and you have to, if you're not vaccinated, you have to provide a negative test result every, or within 24 hours each day you attend the festival. Oh, wow. So, you know, it, it's going to be very hard for people to, I think, get in who are not vaccinated. And on top of that, they're saying, you know, they recommend mask usage. I think that one is almost certainly not going to be followed because it's going to be a September weekend in Chicago. So my guess is it's going to be somewhere around 700 degrees Fahrenheit. No, you'll be fine. I'll it'll be fine. Be, okay, but it, either way, nice. I think it, I think it's probably asking a lot, especially uh, for that many people in a large outdoor area, to be like, okay, everybody, keep your mask on while you're, you know, hot or you know, doing whatever else. Yeah, um, it's, it's gonna it's 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 gonna be in the seventies all week here. It'll go oh, back to the eighties at some point, but that's yeah, beautiful. It's, it's phenomenal. But I, but I will say, I, I I do feel comfortable with. It. I mean, I'm fully vaccinated, but I also feel comfortable with it because I remember seeing the the reports post Lollapalooza that there had been very few transmission ca- transmissions mm-hmm. and cases from that festival, which is going to have probably three times the attendance that the pitchfork will. Oh, if not more, yeah. If, if not more. So that that makes me feel good about that, that this is probably going to be as relatively safe as you can. I mean, in terms of live music, an outdoor festival is about the safest thing you can do right now, I believe. I still haven't done an indoor show. I've done only one show since the pandemic. Well, it didn't end, but changed. And that was on a rooftop in a in a in at a Brooklyn venue. So I've, I've not done an indoor show yet. Right. But, um, no, but I am, I am glad that there is that vaccine program. And I think that the city of Chicago itself is, if they're not already, they're getting to a point where vaccination, um, proof of vaccination will be required just to do, to go anywhere, you know, restaurants, bars. Illinois like, went, Illinois starting three days ago went back okay. to um, indoor masking as a requirement as opposed to a suggestion. Yeah. Um, I'm not, yeah, and, and I haven't been anywhere, so I'm not too. sure, I'm not sure how well it's being enforced, um, especially here in DeKalb, but I, I, they did go back to like state mandate of masking indoors. Yeah. And, and New York is there too, but New York also has the proof of vaccination requirement for mm-hmm. restaurants and bars at the very least. And I think, I can't remember when I went to the, I can't remember when I went to the MoMA if you had to show proof of vaccination. I know I did. You did. So to get into museums too. Right. So yeah, that, that's what I got coming up. Uh, Going to Chicago, going to Chicago for the second time in two months, so that I can go back. I'm very excited too because the hotel um, that I'm staying at 
is I don't remember which one it is. I actually just got an email from them. Uh, it's a it's a Homewood Suites in the downtown West Loop or something. Okay. On Jefferson Street. Yep. Uh, if anyone wants to come stalk me, and I picked it in part because it was you know it's affordable and it's well located to Union Park. I think it's like a ten or fifteen minute walk to the to the park, but it's also right by Al Cheval. Don't know it. So I plan on eating a burger maybe three times a day while I'm there <laughs> because that's one of the best burgers in the, I've ever had. <laughs> Last night when I was in Chicago in July, I, I, I stopped by Small Cheval and had a wonderful time. So it's yeah, it sucks. Like it's I would like to I still have from my previous life um, literally hundreds of thousands of Marriott points. Um, yeah, the the tragedy that every baseball writer went through over the yeah. last year plus of all these points just sitting there, and they're just sitting there, and like it's it's, and I you know I, we like to for our anniversary and things like that go to a hotel in our old our old hood in Chicago and and have a lovely night out, and I just keep waiting for that opportunity. It just doesn't present itself. Yeah, it, it'll it'll happen again, but yeah, yeah. it's time for a moment of culture, John. Okay. Do you have something? Yes. Uh, if you have not seen it, if you have been living in a hole the last couple of years, and if you've not seen, uh, if you didn't see the show or the movie that the show is based off, you of, talk about the wire. What do you got? <laughs> I mean, I love the wire. Uh, <laughs> <Sure>. I just <laughs> look. Wait for that. Look, like you've. If you're a baseball fan, you've probably watched the wire because you're you're probably an older white person, and older white folks love the wire with good reason. It's a fantastic show, and and it's by the the the. The, the capo di tutti white, older white people capos of that is David Simon. But for me, it's the very funny, very silly, very well done, what we do in the shadows. Fantastic TV show. Coming back next week. Coming back. No, coming back tonight. Tonight? September 2nd, season three premiere on FX. Oh. Ah. Uh, FX, Fox, whoever is in charge of FX, please give me money. Uh, if you've not watched that show, it is a half hour comedy. All Both seasons are available on Hulu. It is both very easy to binge and very recommended. You will laugh yourself stupid. It features uh, some of the funniest comedians currently working, including one of my personal favorites, Matt Berry. He's just phenomenal. I wish I had a voice like that. pompous British accent that is just deployed absolutely perfectly. It's based off a movie that starred, uh, that was directed by Taika Waititi and starred both him and Jermaine Clement. So and if you're trying to get an idea too. of what it is in terms of humor, that's where it is. The premise is it's three vampires who live in, or four vampires actually, uh, who live in Staten Island and are just incompetent boobs at everything. At literally everything. They cannot do anything right. It is very funny. It is one of my favorite shows on TV, if not my favorite. Right. And, in they, a they, vein, and they kind of have like the centuries old vampire aesthetic, but they're stuck in. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It's, Staten Island. And it's, and the thing, the key to me about that show and what makes it work so well is everyone is taking it seriously. Yeah. Because it'd be so important. easy for a show like that to be. You know, it's for everyone just to kind of be, oh, do 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 like goofy. I don't know what that sound was, but no, but they they fu- they are fully committed to the bit. They execute it perfectly. So I, re- I really recommend if you haven't seen it, if you have seen it, obviously, you know what I'm talking about. It is back tonight in a similar vein. And for FX to give me more money, uh, they've just released a show. Also, uh, a Taika Waititi associated show. He executive produced it uh, called Reservation Dogs. It is a, oh, it is a show. I've seen I've been I've been told to watch this and I have not. Is it good? I, I watched the first three episodes the other night because it it's only on Hulu, I believe. It's not airing on FX right. proper. Uh, it's about four kids who live on a na- or four teens who live on a reservation in Oklahoma. Uh, everyone involved with the show in terms of creation, starring, writing is native, uh, is, is, is part of some native tribe. 
It's very funny, but it's also, I think, uh, I've uh, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan do the Watch podcast for The Ringer described it as having a Richard Linklater vibe, and I think that's really Ooh. accurate. It's it's really just about these four kids who are just trying to kind of get out of this place that they hate, and just kind of this this kind of shambolic pace of life in in a reservation in a small reservation town in Oklahoma. It's very funny. To me, actually, the funniest person in it is someone I would not have expected at all, Zan McClendon, who is probably better known to people for being in season two of Fargo and season two of Westworld. He had a he had a solo episode basically in that season two of Westworld. It's probably the best thing that show's ever done, which granted low bar, but uh, <laughs> he is very funny in that show. They let him just play a straight comic role and he just absolutely nails it. But everyone is really good in that show. It is both funny and actually very heartfelt. It, it's very clear that everyone involved in the making of that show has a real love and appreciation for what went into it. And I also really highly recommend that. It's not as Definitely not as over the top silly or funny as what we do in the shadows, but very much a good a good loose hangout vibe show. Right. And a very easy way to, to just spend, you know, twenty minutes. I think it's I think it's a new episode every Monday. Uh to spend twenty to thirty minutes, however long each episode is, just kind of hanging out in the vibe of a place, especially a place that a lot of people know know nothing about and never see is is the world of Native American reservations. I have and, I've, and I th- I've and, driven by them and I feel like I have more exposure than most. Yeah, and I think I, I think I really like about the show too is it does not shy away from what those places are. It doesn't give you a, a sunny, like right. rose colored view of what it's like to live in a reservation. It's not overly it, romantic. No, it it is not overly romantic. It's realistic. It is yeah. This place is kind of a dump, but it's our dump, mm-hmm. and it means something. And there's a lot going on I think there too, with kind of what it means to be Native American at this time and age, and kind of what that. What, what does that mean to you for each individual? Like, what does it mean to be a Native American in 2021 America? And I, I think it's a fantastic show. I really li- I've really liked what I've watched so far. So, yeah, John Landgraf, if you listen to this podcast, you can make your check out to Jonathan Taylor. I will, <clears throat> excuse me, not give you my address because I don't need to be stalked. But you just, can just email email me, chinmusic at fangraph.com. Yeah, email, email Kevin's you. assistant yeah. at chinmail. At chinmail. <laughs> chinmail. Wow, that's awful. Chinmail. Chinmail. Brought to you by... <laughs> But yeah, that's that's my culture right now. And I also, uh, since we just talked musically, I will recommend the new Halsey album. Like I said, it's really good. It's, you know, Trent Reznor is just a damn genius when it comes to production. So very, very much recommend that one. If you want something that is grimes, but better. Um, Speaking of Wellington, or speaking of, of what we do in the shadows, Wellington Paranormals on HBO Max. Have you seen yes, that? Yes, the, uh, the other spinoff of that movie. It's the other spinoff of those people. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's the same kind of humor people playing something incredibly straight and that's what makes it so funny and it obviously wellington new zealand most of the people who makes these shows are in new zealand um and it's a, a, a group of police officers who are investigating paranormal stuff and like the key is much like um what we do in the shadows is just like there's no and they they, we, they don't even like set it up or anything like that it's just like in what we do in the shadows like vampires are real right that's just mm-hmm. part of the reality and this is like all these things you know ghosts and werewolves things are just it's, real and this is how the police deal with them it's just the commitment to the bit that's really yeah it, it is what makes it um but i did want to talk about a show on netflix um that is great fun in a a world where we need escapism it is not groundbreaking it's it's but it's great great fun it's called brand new cherry flavor and it is a i don't it's like seven or eight episode series um one story told in whole um it takes place in i, I kind of like the setting as well it takes place in the in the early 90s in los angeles and it is the story of uh a, a independent woman film director 
who uh, goes to Los Angeles as kind of the hotness off of her indie film and um, and a scumbag producer who kind of buys her film and then screws her over and her getting revenge through the world of the supernatural. And it has, there are times it tries to be, have like a Twin Peaks vibe. Um, for sure, it's trying that. It's visually quite good. Um, the story's quite good. It is gruesome. People vomit kittens. Um, and there's plenty of, of violence and things like that. It's it's a, a wonderful adult escapist vehicle that will help you get through your week. Yeah, if, if anything right now, if there's any particular reason to recommend shows like what we do in the shadows and, and reservation dogs, it's boy after this week i think everyone really could use just, just get away from it all 30 minutes just to laugh about stuff that has nothing to do as much as or as much <laughs> as they can with the world at large because both the, the nice thing about both those shows they exist within the world that we live in but they're not particularly interested in talking about that world so like the characters live in their own world and you you can just kind of ignore that bad stuff happens elsewhere right you know? it's, exactly it's, this movie not, this, this show has plenty of bad stuff happening in it um but in an entertaining way. But it's really like Catherine Keener kind of. Oh, Catherine Keener, the best. Yeah, Love Catherine Keener. just absolutely like chews up the scenery in every scene she's in. Um, it's really good performance. It's clever. It's a lot of fun. You do like, you know, it's one of those good shows. Like, you know, the show's over. You're like, nah, let's just watch another one. You know, um, don't have enough of those. Absolutely not. I think we're done here, John. I think we are, too. I cannot thank you enough for coming into the co-host chair for a week. And uh, if you want to email the show again. It's chain music. No, it's uh, chin music. I was going to say chain mail. Chain mail at Fangraphs. It's chin music. Now, if, if you message chain mail at Fangraphs.com, you get a bounce. reply from Dan in full, <laughs> like in full knight's armor, challenging you to an online duel. Of, of Hearthstone. Yeah. Um, chin music at Fangraphs.com is the address. Um, and if it's good, my assistant will pass it on to me. Um, and thanks to everyone for, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Julian McWilliams from Boston Globe for coming up and talking to us about more darkness. Maybe we'll do a happier show next week. And maybe not. We'll see. But for now, thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next week.